0: Can you, now you can hear me, okay. One small change on the uh, pretrial order is you identified me as uh, the chief bankruptcy judge at one point, point. I had to correct that, so. Uh, your, your Honor, no battlefield promotion.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was I don't want it either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure your time will come. Um, so with, with that, Your Honor, um, I would cede the podium to uh, Ms. Sarkeesian, the movement, and we'll proceed uh, following her lead.
0: Okay. And just a reminder for those uh, on Zoom, uh, this is a formal court proceeding. You are participating in a formal manner, so you need to keep your video off unless I call on you to speak and your audio should remain off at all times. Disruptions will not be tolerated and you will be removed if you interrupt the proceedings. So with that, Ms. Arkeesian, go ahead.
2: Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning. For the record, Juliet Sarkeesian, on behalf of the U.S. Trustee. Are,
0: there, are, are there microphones on there, too? Okay. I need to pull it a little closer to you.
2: Hopefully this is working.
0: I can hear you now. Yeah.
2: Um, so, Your Honor, um, the uh, Council for the Parties in Interest uh, had discussed, and we wanted to present to you a proposal, that we would each start with not more than a 10-minute opening if it pleases the court, followed by evidence and then closing statements. Is that acceptable, Your Honor? Yes,
0: absolutely. Thank you, Your Honor.
2: Also, Your Honor, um, in the joint pretrial order, the U.S. trustee included two motions in limine. Would Your Honor, uh, when would Your Honor like to hear those?
0: Well, before we start the evidence. So let's do the openings and then we'll do the motions in limine.
2: Thank you, Your Honor. The U.S. Trustee has moved to appoint an examiner in these cases under both 1104c1 and 1104c2. As the U.S. Trustee has argued in its motion and reply, Section 1104c2 of the Bankruptcy Code mandates the appointment of an examiner in a debtor's case if there is no trustee appointed no chapter 11 plan has been confirmed, a party in interest or the US trustee has requested the appointment of an examiner and the debtor has fixed, liquidated, unsecured debts other than for uh, debts for goods, services or taxes or owing to an insider that exceed $5 million. All of these elements have been made in this case. I think everybody can agree there's no trustee and there's no chapter 11 plan. And the US trustee has requested an examiner. The, uh, all of the objectors, um, the debtors, the committee, and the joint uh, provisional liquidators, have all stipulated that the $5 million threshold has been met under 1104 C2 for three debtors West Realmshires Inc., FTX Trading LTD, and Alameda Research LLC. As to the other debtors, the objecting parties do not stipulate that the $5 million threshold has been met because they are not currently in a position to make that determination. However, the objecting parties stipulate they are not contesting the examiner motion on the basis that the $5 million threshold has not been met for those other debtors. So, based on the stipulated facts alone, the U.S. Trustee believes that the code does mandate the appointment of an examiner in these cases under 1104 C2. The objectors argue that in addition to the elements that I've just set forth, the Code has an additional requirement, which is that the court find the appointment of an examiner is appropriate in these cases. While the U.S. Trustee believes that the evidence will establish that an examiner is appropriate in these cases, the U.S. Trustee does not believe that the Code requires a finding of appropriateness for either C2 or C1 for the reasons set forth in the U.S. Trustee's reply brief, which I will touch on. The objector's reading of the statutes would mean that the only time that C2 would be applicable is if the $5 million threshold was met, and it was not in the best interest of the creditors to have an examiner, because if it was, then it would go under C1, But, but so that even though it was not in the best interest of the creditors, it was nevertheless appropriate to appoint an examiner. So that if, if appropriateness is a requirement, that would be the only time that C2 would apply. It's not in the, be- the threshold's been met, it's not in the best interest of the creditors, but it's somehow still appropriate. That, it's rather difficult to imagine what that situation would be. Uh, in addition, the wording of 1104C is that the court shall order the appointment of an examiner to conduct such an investigation of the debtors as is appropriate. I will note that it does not say if it is appropriate, which is different, and that's how the objectors are interpreting it. The U.S. Trustee, along with the majority of the published opinions that have addressed that issue, do not interpret as is appropriate to mean if it is appropriate, but rather as is appropriate to modify the term directly before it, which is an investigation. So in other words, as is appropriate, relates to the scope of the investigation, an appropriate scope of the investigation, not whether an examiner shall be appointed if the requirements of 1104C1 or C2 are met. And I think it's also important to note that 1104C2 does not provide for the examiner, for an examiner in every case in which a debtor has debts that exceed $5 million. It's much more narrow than that. To be counted to the five million, it has to be unsecured, fixed, liquidated, and for debts other than goods, services, or taxes, and not be owned to an insider. The not being for goods or services is a pretty significant factor. So the it's, it's much more stringent than just having over $5 million in debt. That's my way, Your Honor, of saying that, that 1104C2 does not mandate that, it, that an examiner be appointed in every case in which the debtor has more than $5 million in debt and anybody requests it. That would be virtually every case that's before this court, I would imagine. But it's much more narrow than that. And, and here, again, they've stipulated, there's no question, that that $5 million threshold, with all of the qualifying terms, have been met, at least for the three. They're not contesting for the others. So, Your Honor, I would ask if the court is now prepared to make a ruling on whether 1104C2 mandates the appointment of an examiner in these cases, because if the court so rules, then there would be no need for an evidentiary hearing.
0: Well, I'm not going to make that ruling now, but I will give you the opportunity to argue that in closing.
2: Thank you, Your Honor. Your Honor, the U.S. Trustee also believes that the requirements for 1104 c one have been met because the appointment of an examiner is in the best interest of creditors and other parties in interest, as has been demonstrated by the testimony of Mr. Ray, Mr. Mosley, by way of declaration, which we will be admitting, as well as Mr. Ray's testimony before the House Financial Services Committee. And the U.S. Trustee will reserve the ra- remainder of the argument for closing, unless Your Honor has any questions at this time. Okay.
0: No, I'll save my qu- my questions for
2: closing. Thank you. Thank you,
3: Good morning, Your Honor. Jim Bromley of uh, Sullivan and Cromwell on behalf of the FTX debtors, and may it please the court. Your Honor. The question that the United States trustee has posited um, whether or not um, we are in a world of mandatory rulings here um, is one that unfortunately the U.S. trustee um, mischaracterizes in terms of uh, both the statute, the statutory language, and the precedent that exists. If you focus first on the statute, Your Honor, before you get to C1 or C2, The word appropriate, it's in the statute. As is appropriate is the phrase. And that phrase, as is appropriate, has not been determined by the Revco decision in the Sixth Circuit, the only circuit decision that the U.S. trustee hangs so many hats on. In fact, if you go to the Revco decision, it's about three pages long. The 20 minutes that the Sixth Circuit spent on writing the Revco decision should not be controlling the decision as to whether or not this court or any other court should be appointing an examiner as a mandatory matter so long as a $5 million threshold is met. Notwithstanding the Trustee's most recent comments, the $5 million threshold is but a peppercorn when we're dealing with super mega cases like we have here. God bless you. So when we're talking about cases of this size and scope and magnitude, it's all virtually certain that a $5 million threshold is going to be met, and therefore, under the rule that is proposed by the U.S. trustee, it's virtually certain that an examiner is going to be appointed in every case. And remember, Your Honor, we may be sitting here today with the U.S. trustee, um, but the statute is written in terms of any party in interest or the U.S. trustee. The vast majority of examiners are requested by parties in interest who have a particular point to advocate, a particular axe to grind. If we simply adopted the United States Trustee's point that if you meet the $5 million threshold, an appointment of an examiner is mandatory, then we're going to have an examiner in virtually every case. And indeed, The precedent here in the District of Delaware is very instructive and virtually ignored by the U.S. Trustee. Court after court in matter after matter, including Your Honor, has ruled that 1104 does not require the appointment of an examiner if the $5 million threshold has been met. Judge Sanchi, Judge Walrath, Judge Gross, Judge Carey, yourself, Judge Silverstein. This is not a happenstance. This is a rule in the district. The US trustee makes a great deal of pay about the fact that there's not a written decision, a published decision. That, with all due respect, ignores the practice that we all engage in, which is that we have here in case after case Situations where we ask bankruptcy judges to make rulings and many of those rulings come from the bench and we consistently look at those rulings as binding precedent. And it's not as if one decision came out or one comment came out, but we have a consistency here over a 15-year period and longer, even back to Judge Walsh. That is what the law is here in the District of Delaware. And we shouldn't lose sight of what's happening here today. This isn't about FTX. This is about the United States Trustee's Office out of Washington looking to make a matter of national policy
0: and using no, no, this no, I'm case- I'm
2: sorry, I'm going to object to that.
0: It's opening, you can, we'll see if he can sus- sustain it with evidence, but he can make whatever comments he likes in opening.
3: So, Your Honor, What we are looking at here is not about FTX. Matter of fact, since we've been in in front of your honor uh, since November 11th, uh, I would say 80 or 90% of the time we have spent in court has been dealing with issues that have been raised by the United States Trustee. Whether it has to do with the creditor matrix, whether it has to do with 2004 requests that we filed. We had an objection filed over the weekend to a 2004 request to take discovery from Sam Bankman-Free. What the U.S. Trustee is doing here in this case is seeking not simply to be a watchdog, but to be a participant in a manner that effectively replaces the uh, official committee of unsecured creditors that they themselves have appointed. There is nothing in the statute that talks about a true neutral. There's nothing in the statute that talks about their needing to be an independent party that is standing outside of the four corners of the debtors when the facts will show that the four corners of these debtors is controlled by an independent chief executive officer, an independent board of directors, both of whom were appointed after the petition date or on the petition date and after. (coughs) The facts are going to show, Your Honor, that it is not appropriate in this case. It is not appropriate in this case to appoint an examiner. It's not appropriate in this case to conduct any investigation at this moment in time, Mr. Ray will testify that there are enormous efforts that have been made since the beginning of the case to investigate the facts and circumstances that gave rise to these filings. Mr. Ray is going to testify that the cybersecurity environment that characterizes these debtors is unique, that to allow anyone else into that cybersecurity environment, will jeopardize the security of everything that has gone forward and everything that will go forward. With all due respect, the U.S. Office views this as if we have a warehouse full of sacks of potatoes. We do not. We have a virtual environment that is filled with code. And even looking at that code puts at risk everything about the cybersecurity environment. The investigation is not simply a legal investigation. It's not simply an accounting investigation. It is a technology investigation. The facts and circumstances here make it very clear, Your Honor, that if there's a case where an examiner is not appropriate,
0: it's this case. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else just make an opening?
1: Good morning, Your Honor. Ken Pasquale from Paul Hastings for the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors. Um, Let me just start by saying, and we'll save some time, I agree with Mr. Bromley's comments with respect to the discretionary nature of the statute. Perhaps talk some more about that in closing. I only wanted to make a couple of very brief uh, points in opening. We all recognize that this is a unique case. And it's unique in two particular ways, I believe, with respect to the U.S. Trustee's motion for an examiner. First, as Mr. Bromley just alluded to, and we will hear testimony regarding, the debtors are controlled by entirely new management and boards of directors that were installed literally on the eve of the bankruptcy cases. None of the alleged bad actors remain with the company. The new management group's task is not only to investigate what happened pre-petition, as would an examiner, but also, unlike an examiner, to act upon that investigation and with the committee, evaluate and prosecute claims to maximize recoveries for all of the stakeholders of these estates. Secondly, unlike many other cases involving fraud in which an examiner was found to be appropriate, here there's only one class of creditors, the unsecured creditors. These debtors do not have any secured debt. It's the committee's statutory and fiduciary obligation to investigate what occurred pre-petition for the benefit of those unsecured creditors, customers and other creditors alike. And given the capital structure here, the committee has no incentive or reason to use an investigation for a strategic advantage in planned negotiations or otherwise, as the U.S. Trustee asserts in her motion in its motion, excuse me. The committee is perfectly positioned to investigate in these cases with the debtors and as necessary individually. Accordingly, Your Honor, and as you'll hear in closings and after the proof, um, we do not believe it is appropriate in the circumstances of this case to appoint an examiner. And unless the court has questions now, I'll reserve further comments for closing.
0: Thank you. No questions.
1: Thank you, Your Honor.
4: Good morning, Your Honor. Chris Shore from Case on behalf of the Joint Provisional Liquidators in the Bohemian Proceedings of FTX Digital Markets. Uh, we don't intend to put on any evidence today and we'll reserve argument for closing. Okay,
0: thank you. Anyone else? All right. Ms. Sarkeesian.
2: Thank you, Your Honor. May I address the motions in at this time? Yes. Your Honor, the U.S. trustee has two motions in limine. The first one relates to the scope of the testimony of Mr. Ray. Based on information that the debtor's counsel has provided to the U.S. trustee concerning the scope, it appears that he will be testifying as a fact witness about his opinion on the usefulness of examiners in bankruptcy cases in general or perhaps just in the bankruptcy cases in which he's been involved. Now, such testimony should not be admissible for the following reasons. First of all, this is really in the nature of expert testimony and Mr. Ray is not qualified, he's not been put forward as an expert witness and I do not believe he's qualified as an expert witness on whether examiners are helpful in bankruptcy cases. Um, In addition, such, such testimony is also not relevant under Federal Rule of Evidence 401 as to whether an examiner should be appointed in these cases. Under 1104, the standard for appointment an examiner is not whether it's been helpful in other cases. It is a legal issue as to whether the requirements of 1104C have been met. The utility of examiners in general is a policy issue for Congress. It is not for the trier of fact or the trier of law. It is not relevant to consider usefulness of examiners in other bankruptcies because it does not inform the court regarding the factors to be considered here. So... And and balancing under 403, the probative value of any of Mr. Ray's testimony on this issue, it's outweighed by the danger of confusing the issues, undue delay, and wasting time. He does not have an examiner report in this case. He's giving a subjective opinion of examiner reports in other cases. That's my understanding of what his testimony is to be. And it is not relevant to whether an examiner should be appointed here. And then our other motion in limine relates to exhibits, and it's it's re- it's a related motion essentially because I understand Mr. Ray is going to be testifying about the exhibits to which we object. So, Your Honor, should I allow um, other parties to address this first motion in limine?
0: Let's do the first one and then we'll go to the second one. Thank you. Uh, Your
3: Honor, Jim Bromley from Sullivan and Cromwell. Um, I, I don't know that I would characterize uh, Ms. Casian's comments as a um, motion in limine as more of an objection to particular testimony that's not yet occurred. Um, I can assure the court we are not going to offer Mr. Ray as an expert. So the idea that we have not submitted an expert report or we're seeking to elicit some sort of expert opinion from Mr. Ray, I should. Uh, I, I can assure the court we're not going to do either of those things um- With respect to Mr. Ray's prior experience, um, uh, we believe it's absolutely um, relevant, critical, uh, not confusing, uh, for Mr. Ray to talk about the two circumstances where he has run into examiner reports. Mr. Ray is the chief, former Chief Executive officer of Enron and the former Chief Executive of Residential Capital. Both of those matters involved the f- um, preparation and filing of substantial expert reports at costs um, totaling uh, nearly two hundred million dollars. Mr. Uh, Ray was responsible for prosecuting claims. Um, as you will hear in his testimony, he reviewed the reports and has views as to uh, um, and these aren't opinions, these are his personal experiences as to whether or not the reports were helpful or relevant to him in his, the exercise of his duties. Um, so this, is, this goes directly to his own experience, we're not talking about him uh, looking at reports that he has not had experience with. Um, these are two matters, two very important matters, uh, which frankly qualify Mr. Ray himself um, as um, uh, a, a person with a great deal of experience in dealing uh, in with Chapter 11 and one of the reasons he's here, right? One of the reasons he's in the role that he is. Um, if there's any particular questions about that experience that Ms. Sarkeesian finds objectionable, then I think she has the right to make objections at the time um, on whatever evidentiary basis may exist at the time. But to right now uh, simply prohibit him from testifying because they are um, uh, neither relevant nor uh, or, or could potentially lead this
0: court to confusion, we believe simply is not justified. Okay, thank you. All right, on this motion, um, It's difficult for me to make a determination in a vacuum as to what the testimony is going to be that might be objectionable. Um, I would note that if um, Mr. Ray is going to be testifying about his experience in other cases and how it might, his perception at least, of what um, the efficacy or usefulness of examiners are in these types of cases, um, I think it would fall under Rule 701, which is opinion testimony by a lay witness uh, based on his personal perception. And so, therefore, I would... uh, allow that testimony to go forward. But Ms. Sarkeesian, you're free to object during the course of the testimony to any questions you think are inappropriate.
2: May I move on to my second motion? Yes, of course. Minutes? And Your Honor, just to, again, Juliet Sarkeesian for the U.S. Trustee, uh, just to make sure to preserve all objections, we, we will be having a continuing objection to Mr. Ray testifying about his experience in other cases, or what his opinions are about the usefulness of examiner reports in other cases, I just want to put that on the record.
0: It's noted, so you don't have to raise it every time he a- answers a question. You can. I I'll, I'll give you a continuing objection. Okay.
2: I may <laughs> still object a few times, Your Honor.
0: Uh, that's fine. That's fine.
2: Um, okay. So the second issue has to do with exhibits. So, Your Honor, we were able to stipulate to. Uh, is it twenty-three? Join exhibits, I believe, um, and, and I certainly appreciate all parties' um, uh, efforts in that regard. Um, on Friday, the debtors filed uh, a declaration of Mr. Gluckstein, uh, attorney with Sullivan and Cromwell, in further support of the debtors' objection to the motion of the U.S. trustee to appoint an examiner. It attached 3,855 pages, it's the three, three binders. Large binders, um, and what's what's attached. The first uh, exhibit we do not object to. The first exhibit is just a um, uh, something that uh, Mr. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried signed, a corporate authorization. It's actually part of all of the petitions. I don't think it needs to be separately admitted. It's admitted in uh, Exhibit Exhibit One A, B, and C. But apart from that, what Mr. Gluckstein attaches are the examiner reports in Enron and residential capital. So, first of all, this filing was untimely. The objections to the examiner report and all responding papers were due on January the 25th, and this was filed February the 3rd, one business day before the hearing. And I can assure your honor that I did not have an opportunity to review 3,833 pages of documents. Um, These also were not identified in response to the debtor's, uh, I'm sorry, in the debtor's response to the U.S. trustee's discovery. So one of the interrogatories the U.S. trustee um, had, there were very few, but one of them was please set forward all the exhibits that you will use at trial. There was nothing about, they listed some things, but there was nothing about um, anything from Enron or Rescap or anything of that nature. In addition, these documents are hearsay. They don't fall under any hearsay exception. We don't have the author of the document to to lay a foundation for the documents, or the authors, excuse me, which would be the examiners, and they're also completely irrelevant to the issue that is before this court, which is appointment of an examiner in these cases. Of course, as Your Honor knows, we don't think any of this would be relevant under C2, but even under C1, the best interest of the creditors, it's not relevant what an examiner in another case put in his or her report. And I'd like to respond to, in the joint pretrial order, the debtor set forth their um, statement about why they believe these examiner reports could come in. So the first thing they, they indicated was that the judge can take, Your Honor can take judicial notice of these reports. The U.S. Trustee agrees that Your Honor can take judicial notice of the fact that examiners were appointed in these other cases and that they issued reports that were filed with the court. We have no problem with that. But that does not make them, that does not make the content of the reports admissible. They also argue that these are admissible as business records of the relevant debtors, I assume they mean Enron and and residential capital, under federal rule of evidence 8036. Now, 8036 is a document that is kept in the ordinary course of regularly conducted activity of a business, organization, occupation, or calling, and that making the record was a regular practice of that activity and that all these conditions are shown by the testimony of a custodian or other qualified witness or by certification that complies with Federal Rule of Evidence 902.11 or 12. None of these elements are present. An example of a business record, I'm sure Your Honor is very familiar, an invoice would be an example of a business record. Not a report created by a appointed examiner. That is not a business record, and you also don't have any person to lay the foundation, again, I would assume it would be the examiner, um, to lay the foundation that this is somehow a business record. The last thing that the debtor set forth is 807, which is the residual exception. The U.S. trustee does not believe that the requirements for this exception have been met. And in order to meet this exception, you would also still need to lay a foundation. You would need to have the examiners in Enron and residential capital who wrote these reports testify to establish the foundation to meet 807. Also, 807B requires that the proponents give an adverse party reasonable notice of the intent to offer the statement. And Your Honor, the U.S. trustee did not receive reasonable notice here. So, Your Honor, that, those are the reasons why we believe that the exhibits to Mr. Gluckstein's declaration that was filed at um, Docket 611 uh, should not be admitted other than the first exhibit, which again does not need to be separately admitted because it's already part of Exhibit 1A, B or C.
0: Thank you.
3: Your Honor, um, I'm happy that the U.S. trustee is willing to stipulate that Your Honor can take judicial notice that um, examiner reports were prepared in the um, Enron and Residential Capital matters, um, and fact, if we had had that conversation on Friday, maybe we could have uh, avoided some of this. But the fact is, Your Honor, these are business records of Enron and residential capital. Ms. Um, Sarkeesian is absolutely incorrect that um, either 803 or 807 requires that the author of a document um, be present and able to testify. Um, but the basic construct of records of regularly conducted activity are that the uh, the testimony that would be necessary to uh, admit such a document as an exception to hearsay um, would be sufficient if it was provided by a custodian of such document. Um, Now it is naive to think that in a case such as Residential Capital or Enron or indeed FTX that um, the epitome of a business record is an invoice. The business of those entities and the business of this entity is winding down its business. The records of regularly conducted activity of Chapter 11 debtors include, by definition, those matters that are prepared and filed on court dockets. In terms of the custodian of that document, or these documents, Mr. Ray is present in court and was the chief executive of both of those entities and is qualified testify that these documents indeed were maintained by each of Enron and residential capital in the ordinary course of their business which at the time was liquidating and winding down. Now that being said Your Honor um, the purpose of the use of these examiner reports is not to point to page 532 and say that on such and such a day such and such a thing happened. The reason these um, reports are present in court and are sitting here uh, in front of you um, is so that Mr. Ray can testify that yes, these reports were something that he considered uh, during the course of his work in each of those entities um, and that among the obligations that he had was to maximize recovery on assets and the use to which he put those reports. He's not going to be testifying about any particular fact or assertion uh, in any of the Enron or residential capital reports. It's merely the fact that they existed um, and that he considered them. So he is not going to be testifying in a manner that would require us to um, introduce either of the reports for the truth of the matter asserted in those reports, merely for the fact that Mr. Ray consulted with Red and considered those reports during the course of his obligations as the Chief Executive of each of Enron
0: and Residential Capital. All right. Um, On this one, I'm not going to allow the, um, other than Exhibit 1, I'm not going to allow the two um, reports to be admitted into evidence for a number of reasons. One, I don't believe there was fair notice to the U.S. Trustee uh, that these exhibits were going to be introduced. Two, I don't see how they're relevant to the issues before me today. Three, they are hearsay. They certainly don't fit within the business record exception, which requires under Rule 803 that they be a record of regularly conducted activities. And certainly an examiner report is not a regularly conducted activity of an entity. Uh, So uh, for those reasons, um, I will not allow them into evidence. But Mr. Ray can testify, obviously. I've already ruled he can testify about his work as a... Uh, in other cases where there were examiner reports introduced, and uh, he can testify about his experience in that regard uh, without reference to the reports, the specific information contained in those reports. Okay? All right. Ms. Arkeet, are we done with motion practice at this point? We're moving on to the evidence? Yes,
2: Your Honor, at least from the U.S. Trustee's standpoint. Okay. Testimony of witnesses will be coming in by way of declarations that have been marked as exhibits. So that's Mr. Ray's declaration, that's at docket 24, and another one at docket 92, which are joint exhibits 2 and 3, as well as his testimony before Congress, which is joint exhibit 8 and is on the docket at 371. In addition, Mr. Mosley of Alvarez and Marcel, um, Mr. Edgar Edgar Mosley, by way of his deposition in support of first aid pleadings, which is uh, Joint Exhibit 4 and Docket 93.
0: Yes. Any objection? No objection? They're admitted without objection.
2: Your Honor, we did list um, Mr. Ray uh, as a witness for us, so we're not going to be asking him any questions initially. But uh, to the extent that I understand the debtors will be putting him on, we reserve the right to cross-examine and then to go beyond, if if if, if your your honor uh, permits, to go beyond the scope of their direct and use him as our own witness, which, again, we did put in a, we did file the notice um, that he would be a witness, and we did reserve that right in our notice. Is there any objection? No, you're right, you're right. Okay. Right, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm sorry, Your Honor. My colleague reminded me I need to move for the admission of all the exhibits uh, the 1 through 23. And I'm not sure with mm-hmm. respect to Mr. Gluckstein's declaration. How they want to handle that, because it's only a piece of it that's coming in, but we would move for the admission of Exhibits 1 to 23. Okay. Thank
0: you. Any objections?
3: <clears throat> Your Honor, we have no objections.
4: On behalf of the JPLs, there was a stipulation which was included in the pretrial order that what was coming in today was for the purposes of this hearing only and was not going to be coming in for all purposes in the cases.
0: All right, that's fine. Um, so with the exhibit, you want to mark that as debtors exhibit then separately? Debtor's exhibit number one? As opposed to joint. Yeah. Yeah. Any objection?
2: No, Your Honor. I would just right now it's attached to Mr. Gluckstein's declaration with the 3,800 pages. So can okay. we just have I, I don't I don't know how to to do that technically, but I, I don't want that entire thing being coming in as an exhibit.
0: No, I understood. We'll just submit um, Exhibit One to Mr. Gluckstein's um, declaration as a separate exhibit as debtor's exhibit number one.
2: Thank you, Your Honor.
0: Any other evidence, Mr. Keshe?
2: I'm sorry, Your Honor. Any other evidence? Uh, no, no. Okay.
0: Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Bromley. Your Honor, the debtors would like to call John J. Ray III to the stand. Okay. Mr. Ray, please come forward, take the stand, and remain standing, please.
5: Please raise your right hand. Please state your full name and spell your last name for the court record, please. John J. Ray III, last name R-A-Y. Do you affirm that you tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to the best of your knowledge and abilities? Yes. You may be seated. Your Honor.
0: Thank you. Mr. you may proceed. <coughs> Thank you, Your Honor.
3: Mr. Ray, what's your current occupation?
5: Uh, I'm owner of uh, uh, advisory firm uh, called uh, Owl Hill Partners, and I'm also Chief Executive Officer of FTX.
3: And could you please uh, give a brief summary of your educational background?
1: Uh, yes,
5: uh, I graduated in uh, uh, 1980 from University of Massachusetts. In uh, 1982, I uh, graduated from uh, Drake University Law School, uh, initially admitted in uh, Iowa, uh, Nebraska, and still admitted uh, in good standing in the uh, state of Illinois.
3: And can you please give the court a short summary of say the first 10 years of your professional career? Uh,
5: first 10 years, uh, I, I began uh, at Touche Ross, uh, an accounting firm uh, doing uh, tax work uh, as a lawyer. Uh, thereafter, I moved on uh, to become uh, an associate at uh, Mayor Brown and Platt. Uh, uh, now known as Mayor Brown in Chicago, Illinois, uh, practicing in uh, initially uh, the employee benefits and securities area. Uh, practice included m and work primarily. Thereafter, I departed uh, private practice and uh, uh, became employed by a private company. And um, what
3: private company were you employed at?
5: Uh, Initially, uh, it was Waste uh, Management, uh, now known as WMX. Uh, I began there uh, in uh, uh, 1988 uh, and worked uh, there uh, either for Waste Management, Inc. uh, or one of its operating uh, subsidiaries uh, as general counsel of the various operating units, uh, including certain of their uh, public uh, subsidiaries. Uh, again, for approximately 10 years. Uh, The practice included uh, uh, corporate governance, uh, securities law matters, uh, and then at the operational level, a variety of uh, managing complex litigation uh, and uh, and other investigatory matters relative to the company's operations.
3: And after waste management, what did you do?
6: After
5: Waste Management, the company was sold. Uh, I then became General Counsel of a company called Fruit of the Loom, uh, also based in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I was General Counsel and Chief Administrative Officer of that company.
3: And uh, when did you first come in contact with Chapter 11? Uh,
5: the company, unfortunately, uh, shortly after I got to the company, the company went into uh, to bankruptcy. Uh, the company had a number of operational uh, issues uh, that led uh, uh, to the Chapter 11 uh, and uh, very quickly became embroiled in a, uh, issues uh, relative to uh, the chief executive officer of the company, uh, who at the time uh, had loans that were guaranteed uh, by the company uh, prior to uh, uh, to my joining the company, and they became quickly issues in the Chapter 11.
3: And, and did you have any role in, um, in investigating anything with respect to the CEO?
5: I I did Uh, I mean ultimately, uh, you know within days uh, really of the filing the chief executive officer was dismissed by the board Uh, I then became the most senior officer of the company uh, and ran the uh, chapter 11 uh, for approximately uh, uh, 26 months uh, after uh, the case was confirmed out the creditors asked me to stay on to uh, prosecute uh, a variety of claims including the claims uh, related to the chief executive officer Uh, which I did. Uh, We litigated those uh, cases in a couple different jurisdictions, including the Federal District Court uh, in New York, to recover the monies uh, that uh, uh, were loaned uh, to the Chief Executive Officer.
3: And what was the result of those uh, efforts?
5: We got our money back.
3: Um, And uh, after Fruit of the Loom, what
5: uh after *Through the loom i uh, t- took a liking uh, to chapter 11 it sort of fit the uh uh, uh f- essentially uh you know my business experience uh, my legal experience uh and i took on a variety of uh of chapter 11 cases uh either as a chief restructuring officer or in many cases uh uh essentially the liquidating trustee of uh uh, post-confirmation trust, uh, primarily to prosecute uh, claims uh, related to the bankruptcy. Uh, a number of those cases uh, involved uh, prosecuting claims against uh, accountants uh, and directors and officers, uh, and I certainly can take you through those cases.
3: Can you do that for us? Yes, please.
5: Um, uh, first uh, case that, uh, of course, uh, you know, no notoriety, and you've heard many uh, comments. Uh, in the last few months over, of course, was, uh, was Enron. I became uh, a chairman of the board of Enron and chief executive officer. Uh, that began in uh, 2004 From uh, 2004 through 2008. Uh, it uh, was part the primarily the time period in which those cases were prosecuted. Uh, the company uh, still was very, very complex in chapter 11. I wouldn't say that much was accomplished in the Chapter 11, but much was left over uh, in the Chapter 11. Uh, We still owned a public utility uh, in Oregon, the Portland Utility Company. Uh, We still owned an international energy business. Uh, We still had several thousand employees. uh, And we still were plaintiff in over a thousand cases. Uh, Those cases were uh, uh, a wide variety, Um, virtually every single uh, bank. Uh, an American some outside North America were defendants uh, in cases that were brought uh that were either uh, uh fraud cases or uh, avoidance actions uh and then there was cases against uh law firms uh accounting firms including anderson uh, uh, Vincent and Elkins is a law firm that was uh, sued in those cases uh, but it 's a massive list of cases where Uh, The company was a plaintiff recovering for various uh, misfeasance, malfeasance, uh, fraud, uh, negligence, uh, really the waterfront uh, of uh, uh, events that uh, occurred during the Chapter 11 uh, that were ultimately uh, prosecuted. Uh, We recovered in litigation proceeds uh, about...
2: I'm going to... I was waiting for... Next question, but I'm going to object to this testimony based on relevance.
0: I think he's giving his background. I'll overrule.
5: We recovered uh, over five billion dollars in litigation recoveries uh, uh, against uh, uh, just the banks alone, uh, and uh, the overall recoveries in the case were uh, approximately twenty-six billion dollars, which is double uh, the planned recovery that was estimated in the disclosure statement. Uh, from there, uh, I took on a number of, of other cases. Uh, I was the uh, litigation trustee in a company called Hayes Lemurs. Hayes Lemurs was in bankruptcy a couple of times. I was involved with Hayes Lemurs. One, my sole role in that capacity uh, was to sue the officers and directors for a breach of their fiduciary duty, uh, ultimately settling with uh, uh, the directors related to that action. Uh, we also sued uh, the accounting firm uh, related uh, to, uh, to hayes Uh other cases uh, that I've uh, been involved in uh, uh, I was the essentially the chief executive officer of Nortel which is a cross-border case uh, where we had conflicts between the United States uh, operations for Nortel uh, the uh, uh, Canadian operations and the operations uh, outside of the United States and Canada that involved uh, Nineteen separate uh, subsidiaries, a uh, very complex case involving uh, a myriad of intercompany transactions, uh, you know, somewhat complex that uh, went on for an extended period of time uh, due to the issues between the, uh, uh, the, uh, the various silos within that Nortel estate. Uh, I also was uh, overseas uh, shipping group uh, CEO, CRO. Uh, uh, about the same time from uh, 2012 to 2015. Uh, that case, um, another Chapter 11 case, the principal problem in that case uh, is the company had uh, uh, understated its tax liability uh, by somewhere between $300 million and $500 million. Uh, They had achieved... Uh, uh, that status uh, by uh, obtaining a legal opinion from a very prominent uh, firm in New York. And that legal opinion uh, w- to which they relied on uh, was the vehicle under which they avoided those taxes. Uh, so ultimately, uh, you know, our, uh, our mission in an overseas shipping group, you know, beyond the Chapter 11 uh, was to take on uh, – uh, the issues surrounding, you know, the tax opinions uh, that were uh, uh, in the view of the company and uh, uh, ultimately the creditors uh, that uh, involved uh, malpractice uh, by that law firm. Uh, the case was somewhat unique in the sense that very has one sort of similarity with FTX. Uh, almost immediately uh, upon filing the case. Uh, and discovering, of course, the, the legal opinion and the faulty nature of that legal opinion. Uh, we went into the uh, Internal Revenue Service. I went in uh, with counsel at the time, walked over to the offices over at uh, the IRS on around about 8th and 56th Street in New York, and uh, we walked in and we self-reported uh, that liability. Uh, uh, which was somewhat startling you know, to the service, uh, but it was my obligation you know, as an officer of the company to go in and report that. Um, of course, the reactions from the Internal Revenue Service were unique. There was no particular form for that. Uh, very startling for the IRS to see someone come in and, and self-report a liability that was half a billion dollars. Your Honor,
2: um, I, I don't think this is relevant, but I would object to Mr. Ray testifying about what was in head of IRS agents, whether
5: they were surprised. I'll, I'll sustain that. Thank you. Uh, ultimately, uh, uh, after uh, uh, overseas shipping, uh, I moved on to uh, you know, residential capital. Uh, residential capital uh, was essentially a mortgage case. It was a subsidiary of General Motors. Uh, I was appointed as uh, the litigation trustee for that case. Uh, and prosecuted uh, uh, over 100 separate legal actions uh, related to indemnification and breach of contract uh, related to uh, the sale of mortgages uh, to uh, residential capital uh, in the tens of billions of dollars uh, that ultimately were were faulty, uh, in some cases fraudulent. uh, And we litigated those for for several years and I presided over uh, that litigation
3: so uh, Mr. Ray to take you back um, a bit uh, in, in enron um, when you were the CEO, you uh, were you aware that uh, examiner reports had been prepared um, in connection with that case uh,
5: yes I, I was very very made very aware of those reports um, the the reports uh, uh, when i uh, became uh, affiliated with with enron um, almost immediately uh, my joinder, uh we were in the a middle middle of a somewhat of a, a skirmish uh, related to those reports, uh, because various parties were attempting to uh, uh, to use those reports to get access to those reports. Uh, there was you know, essentially fights over whether or not they should be direct, uh, redacted, uh, their effect on the criminal trials uh, that were uh, uh, yet to have occur, uh, as well as the use of those reports. Uh, that uh, the parties had substantial disputes over.
2: Your Honor, I have a continuing objection to the relevance of this testimony. Overruled.
3: And and Mr. Ray, do you have a, a sense of the uh, cost to the Enron estate of those reports? Uh, the Enron Unru-
2: again, I object as irrelevant.
5: Overruled. Uh, the Enron report was uh, uh, $90 million.
3: Um, now moving on to uh, residential capital, was there a uh, an examiner report in residential capital? There was. And are you familiar with that report? Yes, I am. Um, and uh, do you uh, know what the cost of that
5: report was? The cost of that report was approximately a uh, hundred million
3: dollars. And uh, did you use uh, that report at all in your uh, collection efforts? Uh,
5: uh,
2: I'm I honor again. I object.
0: Overruled.
5: Neither in Enron nor in, in residential uh, funding and residential capital did uh, I make use of that report um, for distinctly different reasons, but neither case did uh, I use those reports. And, and what was the reason you didn't use it in Enron?
2: am sorry, Your Honor, I have to object again based on relevance.
0: Overruled.
5: Uh, multiple reasons in Enron. Um, you know, first, uh, when you review the Enron report, uh, which I believe is, in my experience, uh, characteristics of many of the reports—they're uh, very topical, they're very general. Uh, they're almost sort of a, 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 a curated, uh, a, you know, gathering of, of uh, uh, statements that that fail to take real positions relative to what occurred. Your Honor, uh, I have a different
2: objection here. I believe that the witness is testifying now, testifying now, not just about the Enron report, but more generally. In addition. He is testifying about the contents of the Enron report, and Your Honor has ruled that that those reports are not to be admitted, and therefore he cannot testify about the contents.
3: Robin? I would ask the witness to limit your comments with respect to the Enron report, not other reports. Uh, With respect to uh, the contents, um, Mr. Ray is testifying as to not what the contents were, but how he used those
0: reports in the exercise of his duties. Testify about how you use the reports, but don't talk about the contents of the reports. Yes, yeah, sure uh, it, it,
5: I did not use the reports uh, because they were you know, really very shallow. I mean, sort of a mile wide, inch deep. You
0: know, and ultimately, Thank we you had
2: Honor, to. I think that relates to the contents of the report.
0: Well, he can characterize. He can't really talk about how he used them. If he can't characterize how he perceived those reports. So I'll overrule that.
2: You. Thank
6: you. Uh, it,
5: it, it, you know, ultimately, the, the the information that was in the report uh, was uh, you know, didn't go far enough relative to uh, uh, what I needed to do to prosecute the actions. Uh, the the reports are, are somewhat ambivalent in their, in their conclusory sense, and ultimately
2: Rejection. the evidence... Honor, he's testifying about the contents again, what the conclusions were.
0: He's not telling me what the conclusions were. He's saying that he did not find the conclusions helpful to him. I think that's that's appropriate. I'll overrule the judgment. Uh,
5: but ultimately, I had to spend you know all of the time uh, to investigate and ultimately prosecute those actions. And the reports themselves uh, did not aid in that investigation. Uh, relative to residential capital, somewhat of a different story there. Uh, the residential capital largely was focused on intercompany transactions involving the parent company, GMC, who still owned uh, the equity in the company. So the shareholder was still present during the Chapter 11, and there was an investigation related to, uh, to that existence. Uh, the, the REST camp is, is notable, for, for frankly, for what it didn't cover. Uh, when you read that report, very, very extensive report, you can uh, take an eyeful over there. It's a very deep report. Uh, but ultimately, uh, the tens of billions of dollars worth of uh, mortgage fraud in terms of the mortgages that were sold to the company uh, that I prosecuted that yielded over a billion three in recoveries, uh, which included you know over a hundred cases, two trials, a jury trial, and a bench trial n- n- there 's not a single word in that report
0: related to those actions so Now you're getting into the content of the document. I'll
1: sustain you. Thank you. Um,
3: Mr. Ray, I'd like to uh, just touch on it, based on a couple of the other matters that you mentioned just briefly. Um, we're in the connection with the uh, the Nortel case, did uh, did you have a cooperative relationship with the Creditors Committee in that room?
2: don't object on relevance your honor I'm sorry to m- keep making the same objection but I feel it's necessary
3: Overruled.
5: Uh, yes a very cooperative uh, relationship we worked hand and, and glove
3: and was that including in uh, investigating and prosecuting
6: claims
5: yes we did that really on a joint uh, basis uh, you know at the end of the day uh, you know we're debtors there for the you know the benefit of creditors and so we worked very cooperatively
2: and what was
3: the ultimate recovery to the Nortel creditors
2: Sorry, Your Honor, I'm going to object to the, for the record on relevance.
3: Overruled.
5: Uh, it, it was capped at 100%. Uh, it certainly could have been higher. Um,
3: Mr. Ray, I'd like to, to turn your attention now to FTX. Yes. Um, prior to your appointment uh, in your to your current position, did you have any connections to FTX? No, I did not. Did you have any connections to uh, Sam Bankman-Fried? No, I did not. Or Gary Wang? No. Or Carolyn Ellison? No. Nishad Singh? No. Ryan Salami? No. Do you have connection with any of the um, executives at FTX? No. Did you have any connection with um, Mr. Bankman-Fried's parents? No. Um, can you tell me how you chose the members of the boards of directors?
5: Uh, each of the members of the board directors was somewhat curated Uh, each of them have uh, their independent first of all they had no involvement with FTX uh, similar to my position Uh, uh, we needed an independent board uh, in place uh, immediately Uh, so really within hours of my appointment uh, I saw the need to have an independent board uh, so I contacted uh, several individuals who I knew that had uh, you know, diverse experiences, uh, who uh, collectively as a group um, would uh, uh, form the ideal board to uh, you know, to govern uh, the situation.
3: Um, and then, Mr. Ray, in your first state declaration, you described generally the state of uh, FTX when you arrived. But could you just summarize that for the court today? The the,
5: the company. Uh, You know, it was really unlike any other I've ever seen. Uh, uh, Not a single list of anything. Uh, You know, normally you come in and there's a bank account list, um, but there's personnel who you speak to about these things. Uh, There's there's lists of assets, there's balance sheets, there's income statements, there's professionals, there's insurance, Uh, there's just nobody to turn to really in the company. Uh, Just a complete void, massive scramble. Uh, for information uh, and uh, fortunately you know, we had the services of uh, you know of firms at my disposal uh, who ultimately uh, could become what what I've described as an army uh, of soldiers uh, of women and men who uh, uh, have been dedicated to putting this together
3: Your honor I'd like to put up on the screen a demonstrative Do you have that in front of you, Mr. Ray? Yes, I do. Um, now, Mr. Ray, could you just uh, help walk us through this, starting first with the debtors' advisors? Um,
2: your Honor, I'm just again going to put on the record my objection to this testimony is not being relevant.
0: I'm not even sure what the testimony is yet. Let <laughs> me hear the testimony. Okay, first. Your Honor. <laughs> Mr. Ray, with respect to the group that's uh, debtors' advisors, um,
3: are they participating uh, at your direction? In an investigation, uh, series of investigations with respect to FTX.
5: Uh, yes, I mean the first thing obviously to observe here is the is the center of this this uh, this wheel, and uh, I, along with the directors, uh, are empowered uh, to deal with uh, this sort of circle of of uh, uh, different uh, advisors uh, and different uh, fiduciaries. Uh, as well as you know other parties here, uh, but to your bottom left, to your answer to your question, uh, are the debtors' advisors, and it's really a, a, a multiple a set of advisors uh, because of the technical, highly technical nature of this case. It's also driven by uh, the lack of professionals that were ongoing and, and that I could rely on that uh, existed on a pre basis. So, Either there was an absence of consultants or professionals, or those professionals were not reliable, such that we had to replace those. So obviously, starting at the top at uh, the top of the hour, you know, Sullivan Cromwell, is our main bankruptcy lawyers, uh, immediately uh, at the time of the filing with haste, uh, we uh, we employed uh, Quinn Emanuel, uh, and we did that for uh, for purposes of uh, not only their, their bankruptcy expertise, uh, but they had one of the more renowned. Uh, uh, lawyers uh, in the country in investigatory work. Mr. Mr. Bill, uh, Bill Bur- Burke, who's uh, in this courtroom. Uh, yeah, we brought on uh, Ernst & Young because the company on a worldwide basis uh, did not have reliable uh, accounting uh, professionals. Uh, in some cases, we didn't have uh, income statements and balance sheets at all. Um, all of this had to be recreated. Uh, And as you'll see in in a moment uh, to the far right of me, you know, sits the IRS who's investigating uh, various tax positions Taken by the company and Ernst & Young was brought in to do that Uh, So we really needed those sort of books and records down below of course is uh, the Landis firm who's uh, counsel here in Delaware and also available for other purposes relative to the debtors uh, uh, cases Uh, down below is uh, Perella Weinstein partners uh, the investment bankers to sell the portfolio. This is the portfolio of roughly $5 billion of approximately 400 investments that were made over a myriad of you know, industries and, 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 uh, in a relatively short time period from October of 2021, primarily, uh, to the petition date. Uh, then below that, uh, is Alvarez and Marcel, uh, restructuring professionals, uh, uh, that um, are really sort of the backbone, along with uh, Sullivan and Cromwell, relative to uh, almost everything that has to be achieved in this, these cases. Uh, we also brought on uh, Alex Partners. Alex Partners, you know, another well-renowned uh, uh, firm that had a particular expertise uh, related to uh, uh, investigations and tracing and. And uh, uh, certain skill sets that uh, were essential given what had happened in the company uh, and in uh, their particular expertise uh, was essential uh, relative to uh, uh, the underlying investigations that have led to not only our future prosecution of the avoidance actions, uh, but they've aided immensely uh, the investigation uh, in replying to uh, uh, the regulatory authorities that I'll get into in a moment. Uh, and then last but not least uh, is uh, is Signia. Uh, Signia is a highly uh, technical uh, cybersecurity firm. Uh, this case you know, is about cybersecurity or the failure of cybersecurity. Uh, this firm was needed to protect uh, what was a crumbling shell of securities around Uh, assets that are highly vulnerable uh, and their services were uh, critical as we saw in the 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 waking hours of the morning of the 11th as these petitions were being filed uh, you know hacking was occurring and so this firm you know was not only instrumental in stopping that but also rebuilding an environment uh, that's highly sensitive to this day uh, because of the nature of crypto assets and the vulnerability of crypto assets. Um, you know, over last year, there's been something worldwide reported about $4 billion worth of crypto that's been hacked. And so these folks uh, are essential for us to have some integrity uh, in our systems uh, to allow us to preserve uh, assets and to repair uh, what was a dangerous, dangerous environment relative to... Uh, the storage of uh, uh, hot wallets and other wallets uh, related to the company's crypto.
3: Um, Now, Mr. what steps have been taken to replace prior management?
2: Uh, I'm sorry, now that his testimony is over, I would like to renew my objection. Uh, Obviously, under 1104C2, the U.S. Trustee does not believe any of Mr. Ray's testimony is relevant, but even under C1 as to whether this is in the best interest of the creditors, the fact that the debtors have a lot of retained professionals um, and they're working together is not relevant to the issue as to whether an examiner should be appointed even under C1. Uh,
0: overruled.
5: I'm sorry, could you repeat uh, the question? Yeah,
3: sure. Um, what steps have been taken to replace prior management?
5: Uh, Prior management has been terminated. There's no one in a that was in a control position that today is in a control position uh, whatsoever. Uh, that was eliminated you know, immediately uh, on my taking control.
3: Now, w- when, um, when you took control, uh, the, the omnibus corporate authority, um, which is uh, debtors exhibit one, um, referenced uh, a request from Mr. Bankman free to consult with his counsel at Paul Weiss regarding director appointments. Did you ever consult with Paul Weiss? No, I did not. And and why not?
5: Uh, I didn't think it was in the best interest of the estate to uh, uh, to consult with lawyers for someone who we now know has been charged with crimes.
3: Now, Mr. Ray, um, I'd I'd like to draw your attention on the on the demonstrative to the lower right hand corner. Federal criminal and regulatory authorities. You see that? Yes, I do. are you familiar with um, criminal and regulatory investigations that are ongoing? Yeah, yes, I am. And, and what uh, what have you directed um, the company and your advisors to do with respect to those investigations?
5: Uh, I made it very, very clear from uh, from the beginning of uh, my taking control on virtually the, the day of the control mm-hmm. that... Um, that we would do whatever um, the government requests relative to cooperation. Uh, uh, we believe that, that ultimately, uh, not only is that you know, required, but we believe that uh, you know, it's in the best interest of creditors uh, to allow uh, these regulatory authorities to get full access uh, to the information on a real-time basis as we're learning uh, about what happened in the company, they're virtually getting uh, uh, information uh, again, real time, and we believe that was sort of fundamental to uh, uh, our, uh, you know, uh, mission here, which is to maximize value for the creditors.
3: And do you receive uh, regular reports on the materials and that cooperation that's been given to the investigative authorities?
5: Uh, yeah, virtually daily. Okay.
3: Um, I'd like to. I'll come back to this slide in a moment, but I'd like to turn to the next one. Um, you familiar with this slide?
5: Very much so.
2: Your Honor, I'm going to, again, object on relevance.
3: Okay. Um And, and Mr. Ray, what, what does this uh, slide?
5: Well, it, the first part of it, it, it talks really about, speaks to the, the volume, the massive amount of data that we have produced. Uh, okay. As you can see, we've collected 10 terabytes uh, of data, uh, over 27 million documents. Um, we've provided anal- an analysis on several hundred thousand uh, documents. Uh, we've interviewed and received pro offers of 24 current and former employees. Uh, and then we've also provided analysis relative to uh, the transactions inside uh, uh, the, the, uh, the company's databases. The company's databases uh, include a couple of different databases the primarily uh, primary database is the uh, AWS system which is the Amazon web services where uh, where we uh, uh, housed some of the wallets, the hot wallets uh, and uh, the the database itself is in the millions of terabytes of data so it's it's a vast resource of, of information unfortunately in a somewhat unconstructed environment um, which requires uh, uh, you know the assistance of you know of people like Alvarez and people like like Alex partners to sift through These terabytes to ultimately provide useful data uh, to the regulatory authorities
3: Are you yeah. familiar with the cooperation that's been given to the US Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York and The Department of Justice's National Cryptocurrency Enforcement Team.
5: Yes, um, our our teams that uh, have been involved with uh, uh you know virtually you know a daily requests uh uh as you can see we've had over 150 requests from the southern district um produced substantial amounts of information and uh and provided substantial cooperation relative to uh instances where they wanted specific information uh related to certain actions uh prehistoric actions for the company so uh it's virtually an ongoing, uh, exercise. Uh, but the last, uh, you know, roughly 90 days have been an extremely intense, uh, uh, effort uh, to provide, uh, the, the, information that the government has requested, uh, which obviously, uh, you know, yielded, uh, uh substantial results in uh, record time. Now, Mr. Ray, um, you, uh,
3: are you familiar how these requests come in from the Department of Justice? Uh,
5: yes, I, I am. Uh, I'm familiar with how, how they contact the uh, the, the company. Uh, they do that through uh, Sullivan and Cromwell uh, primarily.
3: And um, and have you ever are you aware of any instances where full cooperation was not given immediately?
5: No, that wouldn't be tolerated.
3: Um, I'd like you to turn your attention to the next uh, slide. Um, now, in addition to the Southern District of New York, U.S. Attorney's Office, um, you're familiar with other um, U.S. Attorney's Offices that have submitted uh, information requests?
5: Uh, we've had full participation. Uh, you know, we've had uh, numerous requests, as shown by this chart, from uh, other prosecutors uh, around the country. Um, the Securities and Exchange Commission has had uh, a number of requests, uh, again, all cooperative um, uh, presentations that have been provided. Uh, The CFTC uh, has been extremely active here uh, in connection with uh, uh, their investigation and have submitted uh, us over 150 uh, requests uh, on a state basis, not shown in this chart, but uh, we have entered into dozens of uh, cease and desist orders uh, with respect to licenses around the world uh, in the money transaction sector, licenses that were maintained by the company. Uh, so this chart really doesn't show the, uh, the full gambit of the things that we've done to cooperate uh, on, a, on, a, on a state, you know, and local basis uh, as well as uh, these particular federal agencies. If I can
3: draw your attention to the next slide. Uh,
5: yes, uh, this, is, this is really what uh, I'm referring to. Uh, we self-report uh, to uh, uh, 26 state regulators. We've produced uh, a mountain of documents there as well. Uh, and we've been in regular contact with these agencies, uh, not leaving it to the agencies to come to us. You know, we've taken a proactive effort uh, to uh, to work with them. Uh, we've hosted update calls uh, with these agencies. Uh, they're almost treating these agencies uh, in effect like a, like their own committee, if you will, uh, and giving no them real time information. An
2: objection, Your Honor.
3: No now, in addition to the various states and state authorities, um, um, have you uh, are you aware of additional requests that have come from Congress and um, non u s authorities?
5: Uh, yes, I've been very very active and personally involved in in these requests um, as you, as everyone has reported uh, I testified uh, in front of Congress, but leading up to that congressional testimony. Uh, We've had uh, 100 requests uh, from the Financial Services Committee. Uh, We've had requests from the Senate uh, as well and follow-up testimony uh, that uh, has been provided to the House Financial Services uh, Committee. Uh, And then we've also uh, been involved in uh, uh, regulatory requests uh, from outside the United States. Uh, They're listed here uh, in pretty extensive uh, requests that stem from uh, our international operations, and we have exchanges that, for example, are in Japan and S- in Singapore, uh, Cyprus. Uh, we have European operations where we host the European exchange. Uh, so all of these uh, agencies uh, relate to the uh, operations outside the United States, and they've been very active in terms of uh, uh, requests as well as, us as responding to those requests.
3: And since the you're aware of the appointment of the creditors committee in these cases? yes I am and so um, uh, what has been the level of cooperation with the creditors committee since its appointment
5: uh, well I, I'd like to think it's a model of uh, of how uh, a company should work uh, with the, the, you know the creditors committee uh, uh, my approach uh, really is a sort of a partnership approach with the creditors committee uh, we've had an, numerous requests uh, from the committee uh, they've been in place, I think, for less than, uh, than probably a full 45 days, something to that effect. So we had a head start, if you will, which was helpful. Uh, that head start um, allowed us then to uh, really put the committee in a you know a position uh, right away where they could uh, uh, you know be a true partner with us in this whole uh, process, this journey we're on to figure out uh, where we're going with the re- with the assets and the recoveries here. So. Uh, We've had, uh, you know, we have lots of calls, almost hourly contact between the professionals uh, and the committee uh, and the debtors. Um, I've personally had uh, a call with members of the creditor committee. Uh, I've also given my uh, contact information on a personal level to the co-chairs of the committee with a full invite for them to call me at any time uh, related to any requests that they might have or any views that they might have. Uh, that they'd like to share with me on a personal basis. So uh, we really have, a, I think, hopefully um, what I think should be a model for uh, uh, cooperation uh, in this important mission. Now,
3: um, let's go back for a moment to the, um, to the directors that were appointed. Um, did you appoint the directors uh, with any, uh, keeping in mind the potential for any conflicts between silos?
5: Yes, there, 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 it's no coincidence that the way we establish the director positions, it is not you know, one board uh, uh, They often function to get information at the same time uh, just for efficiencies and uh, and, uh, and, and Clarity uh, as to the information, but uh, each director is a, a, se- a Director of a separate silo, so they have duties as a director for example of the uh, Almeida si- silo, uh, the other directors do not. Uh, there's a director, for example, for uh, 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 West Realm Shires. So e- each of the directors, there is you know one silo where there's a, a two directors on a silo, but each of these directors essentially have their own silo and their own responsibilities related to the, their silo in the subsidiaries beneath it. Uh, There's also a subsidiary director for those silos who's who's separate as well.
3: And do you have separate uh, board meetings for the directors in the separate silos?
5: Uh, We have uh, joint meetings, uh, which are informational for all the directors. uh, And then we have separate meetings for the directors related to their unique silos. So we actually put presentations together that only deal with that director and that director's unique silo information. And we do that for a few reasons. One is that we want to really give in-depth information related to that silo to that particular director. But we also want to create an environment under which that director can raise any issue whatsoever with respect to their silo versus any other silo or any other issue that exists in the FTX environment. So we want to create uh, an efficient process uh, which allows all the directors to share ideas and share their experiences Ensure access to the the host of you know professionals we have, but we also have a, a very sterile environment where each director gets to spend you know quality time relative to the specific information uh, that relates to that particular silo. For example, if if uh, if there are assets that are in that silo and not in another silo, or if there are intercompany claims, for example, that directors want to. Discuss in their silo vis-a-vis other silos. They've got the environment in the, in the forum to do that uh, outside of the presence of the other directors. So that's that's really the model we created.
3: Um, now, Mr. Ray, I'd like to go back to the cybersecurity environment that you mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, now, um, when. Is there a physical location right now where FTX is located, the company?
5: No, there is not. Um, the uh, the company was described, and I think we referred to it in the first day petitions, as that it's located in the meta-universe. Uh, but we have no physical location whatsoever.
3: So uh, the, the investigations work that's been taking place so far, um, how does that take place in the, the, the metaverse? How does that... How does that um, investigation take
5: place? Uh, carefully, uh, because all of our data uh, is stored in the cloud. Uh, it's st- stored uh, uh, electronically. Uh, this isn't a case where, uh, for, ex- for example, uh, like Enron, where you, we owned a 100,000 square foot facility and we owned a forklift and we hired a forklift operator to go get the documents and someone required them. This requires someone to go into uh, our data environment uh, to do their day job.
3: Now, um, on on the first day of the case, um, we received relief uh, that provided indemnities for certain individuals who were accessing that environment. Do you recall that? Yes, I do. And and, and why was that um, indemnity
5: required? It, 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 the reason for that um, and it's, it's very extensive and I'll try to keep it focused and brief, but it, you're, you're allowing um, and requiring uh, m- more importantly you know professionals to enter into a highly fragile computerized database uh, where things can happen and go wrong pretty quickly. Uh, if you open up that database you're subjecting yourself to third party hacks. Uh, you're subjecting yourself to uh, inadvertent errors. Um, you know, the you know I, I guess the the words sometimes that that you know might come to mind is sort of you know thick fingers or whatever. You literally uh, could could hit the wrong key in this environment and destroy hundreds of millions of dollars worth of value because you've 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 miscued uh, letters to a code. A key, if you will, a, a password that allows you to open up a wallet. Th- this is a, a, an environment that has to be very cleansed, uh, very clinical. Uh, this is not something for you know for people to bounce around in without creating tremendous amounts of risks, uh, external risks, internal risks. So it, it's really it's, it's it's a laboratory that you have to work in very very carefully.
3: So I'd like to show you a. Another demonstrative. Um, this, um, you're familiar with this uh, slide? Yes, unfortunately. And, and so, could you please describe what the, what this is depicting?
5: Well, th- th- this depicts you know a couple, few different things. Um, as you can see, the bricks around this wall uh, shows you know the state of what our AWS environment was at the time of the petition. Uh, a very loose environment, uh, one that. Um, uh, is probably a, a case study for how not to, uh, have, uh, a controlled environment for, for crypto, uh, very vulnerable. Uh, we had hot wallets in a system where people, multiple people had access to passwords, uh, wallets that, uh, you know, sitting in a, a system that are accessible virtually by anyone who could access that data system so these, there's multiple access points into an environment that literally held billions of dollars worth of the company's uh, uh, assets. And as you can see to the right, there's a few uh, different uh, you know, words set out in red print there. Uh, you know, Pre-petition, the, the, this environment allowed insiders to, to freely transfer uh, assets of the company with no accountability and no tracing. Uh, literally, one of the founders could come into this environment, download half a billion dollars' worth of wallets onto a thumb drive, and walk off with them, and there'd be no accounting for that whatsoever. Uh, virtually unthinkable, really, in a controlled environment. Uh, what you'll see down below is that you know, while we were securing this, these, uh, uh, this environment, uh, the, you know, the petition date, Uh, We we signed uh, the the power that gave me the right to uh, advise on the filing of this. uh, That was done at 4:24 uh, a.m. in the morning on the 11th. Uh, By uh, 7 o'clock in the morning, I was reviewing petitions. Uh, By 10 o'clock, we were filing the first positions or first petitions. Uh, By early afternoon, uh, we had I think achieved most of the filings of the petitions. And then throughout that day um those those early hours or within six seven hours, you know we were doing the normal first day petition filing uh and uh uh one of our team uh, one of our advisors, not someone inside the company, one of our advisors that we had hired uh detected uh uh movement of uh, of crypto uh off uh off of our wallets uh and uh so immediately effectively on the filing uh, we had uh, you know an issue with the crypto being stolen uh, uh, from uh, from the company Uh, at the same time uh, you know there were efforts um, at the time we didn't fully realize uh, what was transpiring but there was efforts um, by uh, the provisional liquidators to also secure assets uh, for the protection of, uh, of customers this was all happening simultaneously, so um your normal first day petition is chaotic as it sometimes can be uh, this was um this was something that I've never experienced uh and uh, it, it all stems from the failure of this system and the lack of integrity uh related to this system and um and we were fortunate enough. Uh, because of the professionals, we had to stop these, uh, the cryptos that were being stolen. Uh, we were fortunate, of course, that, um, that the provisional liquidators uh, were also able to capture uh, some of this value and held in custody in the Bahamas um, that presumably could have been also stolen in this uh, time period. Uh, and those hacks uh, went on virtually. uh uh, all night long i think um i I, I think that they sometimes somehow ceased around uh four to five a.m uh the following day Uh, we had over a hundred people uh on the phone uh trying to stop uh these hacks because uh at that point you have no passwords you don't know where the wallets are in this environment uh someone described uh, the wallets sort of uh, in this AWS system is uh, sort of uh, uh, needles in a haystack of needles. And uh, we don't have the wallets. We don't have the passwords. Um, obviously, some people did have passwords that were accessing these. So it was really 48 hours of uh, what I can only describe as pure hell.
0: <laughs> Mr. Brownlee, before you continue, how, how much longer do you think you have? Well, um, I'd say another 15 minutes. Right, let's uh, Okay, we'll go ahead and finish up in that. We'll take a recess before we... Okay, cross. Thank you. Um,
3: Now, Mr. Ray, you can take a look at the next slide. could you describe the, uh, the computing environment at FTX today?
5: Uh, we have created uh, you know, the environment you know, as it should be. I mean, we've hired uh, uh, experts in computer science and, and uh, cryptography. Uh, uh, I've mentioned the, S- the Signia group uh, as well as the uh, Alvarez and Marcel group that have been essential to rebuilding uh, the brick walls around uh, these wallets to give them some security. Uh, we have uh, you know, gotten access to uh, the code and the controls and the data to prevent any further uh, loss by way of hacking. Uh, we've moved uh, hot wallets into what's called cold storage uh, to secure those. Um, we have also gone off to exchanges uh, where wallets are, are contained uh, and moved those wallets um, uh, over to a controlled environment. So this first exercise with the assistance of computer experts is to provide integrity to the environment, uh, increase the security, uh, move those uh, wallets into uh, cold storage and secure uh, the assets for the benefit of uh, customers and creditors. Uh, uh, That, of course, involves you know, the the, the analytics uh, that these experts uh, use uh, to find wallets, uh, and also um, what's key here is to, uh, we're doing a tracing analysis, if you will, will, to uh, look at uh, unauthorized transfers of, of crypto uh, that, um, that either were in wallets or in the environment itself, uh, all with the goal. Um, this isn't sort of an a study for study's sake, there's a purpose here to what this is beyond uh, just the integrity of the system and maintaining it and, and, and securing the assets. Uh, this is effectively to also you know, recoup those assets to uh, investigate um, uh, who moved assets and for what purpose, uh, the source of the funds uh, for those assets, uh, which um, yeah, whether that's external or uh, on an intercompany basis Uh, When we're investigating who did that the potential misconduct the wrongdoers the clawback opportunities related to that Uh, And of course in the process of that uh, All of the evidentiary work that we're doing to cooperate with the government um, Is not an exercise for exercise sake Um, There is no sort of billing code that just says cooperate with the government Uh, We look at all of our cooperation really on an end-use basis. What do we do with that information? What's the byproduct of that investigation? The byproduct is always with an asset in mind or a recovery in mind. Um, it's not sharing for sharing's sake. It's it's how do we use that information uh, that we've provided uh, to ourselves and, and to regulatory authorities uh, to then synthesize, synthesize synthesize it in a way that that provides us with the tools that we need. Uh, to recover on avoidance actions, uh, to inevitably uh, uh, file uh, uh, actions uh, related to you know misfeasance or malfeasance against insiders, for example, uh, and then obviously you know there's the compliance with our Chapter 11 obligations and disclosure, uh, you know that's an ongoing uh, 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 obligation that we have, and uh, and that's fulfilled through this very exercise, uh, and then lastly, as I mentioned, I mean our our, 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 our byproduct of that you know, leads to sharing evidence and cooperating with the authorities. Uh, But this is an ongoing, you know, circular effort, right? Uh, uh, You know, answers be get questions. We provide information. Those that information gets synthesized that turns into new inquiries, new questions, and we're continuing, you know, to evolve in the process. And we've been at it uh, 90 days. It's night and day. When you see this environment today, it's a very simple chart, but to get from where we were 90 days ago, uh, which, which what I would describe as pure hell to where we are today is is pretty satisfying.
3: And then, Mr. Ray, do you think that there'd be a danger of introducing a new party into the environment?
2: Objection. His opinion on this issue is not relevant to the court's determination regarding appointing an examiner.
5: That's the uh, There is a danger, and in you know, beyond, you know, the, you know, the, the, we have a lot of seats at the table. Uh, we're happy to uh, to feed all those people at the table. Uh, but what's unique about this, you know, is this controlled environment? Uh, uh, this isn't some, you know, lawyer exercise, you know, where we uh, bring in a, 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 a well-heeled professional who observes some misconduct by people literally you have to operate in this laboratory to investigate to secure these assets and to develop a process of translating this data into recoverable uh assets uh, for customers uh this 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 is just too fragile of an environment for me to accept um, you know yet another seat at the table with someone who just you know, it bounces into this environment and puts, puts ourselves at risk, we've come too far to uh, to allow that to happen, in my mind.
3: Um, that's all I have for this witness at the moment, Your Honor, reserving time for redirect. All
0: right, thank you. All right, let's go ahead and take uh, a 15-minute recess. We'll reconvene at, uh, what does that put us at, 1125.
2: Here yeah, you ready. Thank you, Your Honor. And for the record, Juliet Sarkeesian on behalf of the U.S. Trustee. Uh, good uh, afternoon yet? No, still good morning. Good morning, Mr. Ray. Uh, good morning. So, Mr. Ray, um, what, in Enron, when was it that you were appointed? Uh, in
5: uh, 2004. Uh, uh, I believe July of 2004.
2: And was that after the Plan had been confirmed?
5: Uh, It's prior to the confirmation date.
2: Was it after the examiner's report had been filed? Yes. And prior, so prior to that time, July 2004, you had no involvement with the Enron case? That's correct. You did not lead an investigation of the Enron debtors, did you?
5: I led the prosecution of uh, those cases yes
2: what type of actions were you prosecuting
5: Uh, virtually all types Uh, there was uh, accounting malpractice legal malpractice uh, uh, breach of fiduciary duty uh, crime there was actions against uh, uh, insurance carriers uh, for failure to pay there was avoidance actions, uh, I, mean, I mean, virtually uh, you know, any type of affirmative recovery uh, uh, that one could think of.
2: Now, you testified something to the effect that you did not feel that the examiner reports in Enron or Rescap were um, particularly useful to you in your roles? That's correct. So do you know whether the courts in those cases viewed the examiner reports as being helpful?
5: No, I don't.
2: You don't know either way?
5: I don't know either way.
2: Um, Your Honor, since Mr. Ordinarily, I would not do this, but since Mr. Ray testified about his opinion as to whether these examiner reports in these other cases were helpful, um, I would like to bring to the court's attention what... The courts stated in the confirmation order in Enron, as well as a transcript in the ResCap case. I can objection, it. that's not
3: evidence.
2: It's it's not evidence, Your Honor. But he testified about his opinion, and the these orders and transcripts are part of the court record, and the court can take judicial notice of them.
0: I think you That's argued earlier I can take judicial notice that they were filed but not the content of those documents, right?
2: That is true, but in, at <laughs> least with respect to an order, an order says what it says.
0: Well, if it's an order, I will take judicial notice of the order. If it's in a transcript, I will not take judicial notice of the transcript.
2: So the order that we have is in, that one is Enron. It's the findings of fact and conclusions of law. No,
6: I'm
3: sorry, I'm sorry.
2: Can I also ask, are you done with the witness? No. Well, what does this
3: have to do oh, with the I'm witness? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm
2: sorry. And I apologize because I was actually going to ask the witness about it, but he's right. Um, since the witness didn't know, I can I can do this later. You can do this later, yes. Mr. Ray, you're, you talked about appointing directors, correct? Yes, I did. And your power to appoint directors came from the omnibus corporate authority that was signed by Mr. Sam Bankman-Fried. Is that correct?
5: Uh, in part.
2: What's the other part?
5: Well, I was... Uh, uh, the, uh, at that point, I was the uh, only officer of the company, and uh, uh, pursuant to that power, I was able to, uh, I had the power to uh, nominate directors and elect them.
2: So when you say the power, you mean the honor this corporate authority? Power. Yes. Okay. And that's debtors exhibit one. I can, um, uh, do you have exhibit one? Or you know what? We can look at, um, do you have a binder up there? Uh, I, I do. If you could turn to exhibit one A, please. And that is the petition of West Realmshire's Inc.
0: Is he here? No. I'm sorry? Whoever that was, kick him out, please.
2: Oh. If you look at the top of the page, it has the ECF page numbers. So if you could turn to page 11 of 20, please. Okay, and does that say omnibus corporate authority at the top?
5: Uh, Yes, it does.
2: Is that the omnibus corporate authority that gave you the authority to appoint directors uh, for the debtors? Yes. Sorry, let me rephrase if an examiner is appointed if the court appoints an examiner in this case would you cooperate with that examiner
5: uh, i will follow whatever orders are issued by this court
2: assuming that you were directed to cooperate with the examiner would you do so uh,
5: can you can you explain what you mean by cooperation oh.
2: If the examiner needs documents, for example, that the debtors have, would you provide those documents to the examiner?
5: Uh, uh, I think there might be some caveats to that, but yes.
2: Are there other things that you would not provide to the examiner if he or she asked?
3: Objection speculation needs to be questioned.
2: That's a fair objection. Okay. Um, you had testified that, I believe you had testified that all. I don't want to. I want to misstate your words. I, did you testify that all former management has been terminated?
5: Uh, I I said that any uh, uh, former management that was in a control position has been terminated.
2: Okay, but there still are some officers currently at the debtors that were present prior to the petition date. Correct.
5: There are um, there are employees uh, that are employed who, uh, who were also employed pre-petition. They're not officers of the company.
2: Do have a stipul- I would point to we have a stipulated fact that there are certain officers that still remain. Is, is, are you saying that's inaccurate?
5: Uh, I'm saying that uh, you, you're, you may be confusing titles with you know, officer positions, which are different in a corporate context. Some sometimes get confused. Uh, for example, the general counsel of the company is the title. Uh, I've not stripped that person of their title, but they don't function as general counsel and not an officer of the company. I certainly haven't appointed him as officer post-petition.
2: So you're saying that there are some individuals who hold officer titles at the debtor that were there pre-petition?
5: That are not in control positions in the
2: company. What do you mean by control position?
5: Positions of control.
2: Could you elaborate a little further?
5: Uh, the, the, the Controlling the uh, actions of the company, making decisions. Uh, related to the company's business or operations, uh, is that
2: sufficient? Yes, thank you. Are you aware that you you had given some testimony regarding um, cooperating with various um, state attorney general's offices and the like? Is that correct? Yes. And are you aware that certain state attorney general's offices or other state agencies have, in fact, joined in the U.S. trustee's motion to appoint an examiner?
5: Uh, I, be- I believe there was two joiners. Uh, I-, I think Wisconsin and uh, uh, one other state.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. You don't recall there was a third one more recently? Uh,
5: if, if you say so. Okay.
2: It attached a bunch of letters from other. Uh, State agencies, you didn't see that? I'm saying, did you see that? The detached letters from other state agencies supporting the uh, joinder?
5: Yeah, I I don't know which ones you're referring to. I did review uh, two of them. If there's a third, I'll take your word for it. Uh, I did read the two that were filed. If there's a third, I may not have read it.
2: Texas State Securities Board. You didn't see that,
3: Your Honor. Can I just ask the relevance of this? I mean, we're we're happy to stipulate that the Texas joinder was filed. Your Honor, he testified.
2: I've seen it too, (laughs) and
6: I've seen the
2: letter. Yeah, he testified Mm -hmm. about how, you know, he's assisting them, and I think it's relevant that they are joining in the motion.
0: Okay. Well, I I get that point, but. I don't know what else he can elaborate on that. Okay. You said he didn't see the third one. I've seen it, I just so wanted I know to it's next. out there. Thank
2: you, Your Honor. I just wanted to make sure if I said Texas, you might have said, oh, yes, now I remember. Okay. No. Fine. Are you aware of any state agencies that have objected to the motion to follow, uh, Motion appoint an examiner? I,
5: I, th- I think, didn't you just say that... that two states, three states had objected? To no,
2: joined. Oh, joined. I'm okay. asking are you aware of any that objected? N-
5: n- no, I am not.
2: Now, your firm is called Al Hill Advisory, correct? That's correct. Okay. Um, and are you the only employee of Al Hill? Yes. Okay. So you are among your services Some of the services you're doing relate to ongoing investigations of various pre-petition actions.
5: I'm sorry, what what case are you referring to?
2: Oh, I'm sorry, FTX. I'm sorry. FTX is one of the services you're currently performing is investigating certain actions that took place pre-petition. Is that something you're doing?
5: Well, I, I, in my capacity as CEO of the company, uh, I am overseeing, you know, every aspect of the company's business operations, including uh, investigations uh, related to uh, pre-petition conduct.
2: Okay, but you're not personally conducting any of that yourself?
5: That uh, depends on the topic of matters, uh, but in some cases I am.
2: Are there other employees at the debtor that are performing those functions? Yes. Okay, and are you overseeing them? Yes. And you're billing on an hourly rate in this case, is that correct?
5: That's correct.
2: Do you know approximately how many, how the amount of fees that your firm has incurred to date in connection with the services you perform for the debtors?
5: Uh, through through what date?
2: Through any date today uh, or the end of last year or whatever date you might have information
5: on? The most recent date I would have information on is the uh, period from uh, November 11, which is the start of uh, the engagement, uh, through uh, uh, December 31. Uh, And that uh, approximate amount, uh, excluding expenses, uh, is uh, $690,000. which is simply the number of hours spent times the hourly rate.
2: Have you looked at the examiner's report in Celsius network? Yes, I have. Are you aware of how many times that report references FTX?
5: I did not do a, uh, a word count.
2: But you did notice there were references?
5: I'm sure there was the word FTX. I don't I didn't, again, I didn't do a word count.
2: Did you look at the examiner's report in the CRED case? No, I did not. Have you ever uh, been an examiner?
5: No, I have not.
2: Have you ever represented an examiner's counsel? (coughs) Excuse me, as counsel.
5: No, no, I
2: have not. Have a moment, please. Sure, Your Honor, my uh, cross is completed. Um, I can wait until after to um, deal with the, um, the order in the Enron case.
0: Yeah. Let's see if there's any redirect, and we'll no, d- no redirect, Your Honor. Okay. Thank you. Mr. Wright, thank you. You may step down. Mr. Okay. Ray, thank you, Mr. Your Honor. Step down.
2: Yes. And should I give a copy as well? Yes. Should I mark this on um, US? Well, it's not an exhibit. This is I'm for not impeachment going to mark purposes only. It. It's, yes, effectively, yes. Um, so. So this is the findings of fact and conclusions of law confirming the supplemental modified fifth amended joint plan of affiliated debtors. Pursuant to Chapter 11 of the United States Bankruptcy Code and Related Relief in Enron, in the Southern District of New York, case number 01-16034. And the date is... I don't have the docket number on this. I apologize. I don't know why. Um, I notice
0: at the top it says not for publication. Yes, What's the effect so of that on my ability mm-hmm. to take judicial notice of this document?
2: I understand, Your right? Honor. I said, I, Mr. Oh, um, my colleague tells me it is available on the Bankruptcy Court's website. Why does it say not for publication? It is available on the Bankruptcy Court's website.
0: But not on the docket? Is it not
2: on the docket? Oh, it predates, the problem is the date, apparently. It's from two thousand and four. I think that's what the issue was, Your Honor. Okay. I mean, it's not—it's not a—it's not obviously not a written decision. But again, Mr. Ray was able to was allowed to testify as to his opinion as to whether the examiner report was useful, and it would seem to me that the judge's opinion on that matter is at least equally relevant. Your Honor, we're
3: not. I don't know that this is the judge's opinion. It says not for publication. I don't even know what part of it's 130 pages or 63. Oh, pages. I is can it something we're supposed yes, to be Yes,
2: at? I would point that out.
6: Okay.
2: So I would first. I would first point out on page 101, in the first full paragraph, fifth line down, the court states the E.N.A. examiner has provided valuable services to the estates of ENA and its subsidiaries and satisfaction of his duties imposed by the court. First
3: okay. of all, your honor, there were four examiner reports. This references one examiner. It doesn't say the report was helpful. Um, it just says the examiner's provided services. We don't know who wrote this findings of fact and conclusions of the law are generally drafted by counsel. I mean, we haven't had a chance to look at it. We object to the use of this, and we're not even sure what the use of it is for. Well, it, it doesn't impeach Mr. Ray. He says he hasn't seen it. So.
2: Well, Your Honor, I mean, the U.S. Trustee's position is that all of Mr. Ray's testimony is completely irrelevant, but, and we objected, obviously, repeatedly to him giving his opinion about whether he thought the examiner reports were useful. Uh, in the two cases he was involved in. And in, in Enron, it was, it was after the fact. He came in after the reports were filed. So, again, if, if he's allowed to provide that testimony, I think the court can take judicial notice of an order of the court, findings, fact, and conclusions of the law that was signed by the judge with these findings. And there are some other provisions I would read about some of the other uh, examiners. But
3: they with that one. Mr. Ray's testimony was opinion testimony. It's his own experience as to whether or not these reports were helpful to him in a job that he conducted and an effort that he was supervising. I'm sure that there are people who think that the examiner report was helpful. I think Mr. Batson, who earned nine million million writing it, probably thought it was helpful. But none of that's relevant to this case.
2: I agree that none of this is relevant to this this
3: case. Mr. Ray is the chief executive officer of FTX.
0: All right, all right, hold on. Um, Well, the problem I have is, one, it says not for publication. I have no idea where this came from. I have no testimony where it came from, so it's not authenticated. Um, It has an electronic signature, but that doesn't tell me much. Unless I have something, usually there's a web address that is... Identified on it or it comes from the docket and there's a docket entry uh, identified on the document. Um, And frankly, um, I mean, what you just read to me is not, I'll take it for what it is, what you just read to me, but I I don't think I can take judicial notice of this given the way it's being presented to me. I need to have some authentication of the document. I don't have any.
2: Your Honor, could I just speak to my colleague for one minute? the web address where it came from, um, would it be helpful if we forwarded this to you?
0: I think unfortunately the only way to do this is to have your colleague take the stand.
2: Unfortunately, this colleague did not personally download the document. Another colleague did that's not present in the courtroom and is in another state.
0: That's a problem. Yeah.
2: Okay, Your Honor. One more, um, so, so we'll... There's nothing further to be done by this. I understand your, your Honor's ruling, and again, normally I would never do anything with these types of documents. I think it is completely irrelevant to the issues before the court, but again, because of Mr. Ray's testimony, and I agree, you know, I think there's a little bit different to say, well, other people might have thought that the report was helpful, but the court's opinion is more important than other people's opinions, I would think. I understand but your point. Thank you. Um, sh- are we moving on to Yes. Final Do ordinance? you have any other
0: evidence? Mm. I guess we. Have, you were done with your evidence. Do you have any other evidence, Mr. Broderick?
4: Uh No, you are. Right. Okay. Any? oh, no, just, just one clarification before the evidence close. Again, Chris Shore for uh, the joint provisional liquidators. Uh, it's unclear whether and to, w- to what extent the presentation that was given is coming into evidence or not, and normally I wouldn't care since it would just be coming in for this proceeding, but there was on that that global, uh, or the, uh, the, I guess it was the first page of the chart which showed all the corporate logos and the admin burn that's going on, there was a a uh, line that went out that said other fiduciaries enlisted the JPLs, and I want the record to be very clear, I don't think the implication was being made, but the chart shows it that the JPLs are fiduciaries for the debtors, they're, they're fiduciary for the Chapter 15 debtor,
0: that's all. Well, those were demonstratives, they yeah. weren't uh, admitted into evidence, yeah. so they're not, they're not part of the record.
1: Kemp for the committee, Your Honor, we have no additional evidence.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Any rebuttal? Ms. Sarkeesian. Oh I'm
2: sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, Your Honor. I didn't hear you. Did Any you?
0: rebuttal evidence?
2: Uh, no. No okay. rebuttal
0: evidence. All right. So we can go to uh, to closings.
2: Thank you, Your Honor. Again for the record, Juliet Sarkeesian on behalf of the U.S. Trustee. Your Honor, I am going to um, make sure I'm not repeating my uh, opening argument. Um, but I think that um, we, we've had some evidence today, and I'll speak about that in a minute. But of course, um, U- U.S. trustee's position, as I did indicate, I am repeating my opening. Um, under eleven oh the, the requirements for 1104C2 have been met, uh, and in fact, the only facts that Could have been disputed were stipulated by the the debtors and the other objectors and therefore the U.S. trustee believes that uh, an examiner is mandated of course the scope of such examination will be decided if if your honor was to appoint an examiner the scope would be dealt with after that Um, don't I
0: need to do that beforehand I mean how do I how do I determine as is appropriate if I don't know what the proposed scope of the examination
2: Well, of course, Your Honor, the U.S. trustee does not believe that the as is is appropriate relates actually to the scope of the examination and not to whether an examiner should be appointed. And the number of cases... Well, it
0: has to to apply to one or the other, doesn't
2: it? Yes, yes, it applies to the scope of the investigation.
0: So that's my question. I, I don't know what scope you're asking me to grant. How would I know how to do that? can't just say I'm going to appoint an examiner and and do what,
2: Your Honor. I've under I understand that in other cases, and I believe that included residential capital. Um, you know, the court said that will be appointing the examiner, and 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 that residential capital uh, did actually think that the as is appropriate was a requirement that had to be. And they found it was appropriate, but the court nevertheless said, "Okay, the scope will be dealt with." You know, now the parties get together. The U.S. trustee appoints an, you know, nominates and appoints an examiner, and then the examiner meets with the parties and they talk about the scope, and then they come back to the court. But, Your Honor, I am happy to give you. I, I circulated last night to all the other parties because we we've had a number of questions about scope. So last night we said, "All right, here are some examples." Can't say that this is every. Here are some examples of the types of things that would, you know, a, 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 excuse me, an examiner could investigate. So number one, the facts and circumstances surrounding the misuse of customer funds. Prepetition, um, identifying the individuals and entities that were involved in that, or who knew about it, or should have known about it and determining whether any of those individuals remain employed at the debtors or otherwise have some continuing involvement in the debtors affairs. Also investigating any actions taken by the debtors, their officers, directors, employees or others to conceal the misuse of customer funds including by way of software. That was something that Mr. Ray, in his uh, first day declaration talked about the use of software to hide, to conceal the misuse of customer funds and then again uh, whether such individuals remain employed at the debtors. Also investigating who was responsible for the debtors' corporate controls and governance, the gathering and maintaining of financial information, systems integrity, the control of the debtors' cash, maintaining the security of the debtors' digital assets, maintaining the security of customer cash and customer digital assets, and what actions were taken or not taken by the debtors, their directors, officers, employees, or others in that regard, and determining whether any individuals or entities who were responsible for such failures remain employed by the debtor or have continuing involvement in the debtor's affairs. And again, this is picking up on Mr. Ray's first day of declaration where he talked about just a complete, uh, I believe, complete lack of these various controls. So, and, and financial information, and all of these issues that he said was the worst thing he'd ever seen, even worse than Enron. So that would be one, who was responsible for that? Who turned a blind eye? Um, so that would be another area. Also, just I think more generally, investigating all allegations of fraud, dishonesty, incompetence, misconduct, mismanagement of the debtors by their officers, directors, employees, or others, determining whether any individuals or entities who committed fraud, dishonesty, incompetence, misconduct, et cetera, remain at the debtors or have continuing involvement with the debtors' affairs. And then also investigating the facts and circumstances re- or, uh, revolving around all of the hacks of the debtors' exchanges that occurred both before the petition date and after the petition date, determining what individuals or entities were responsible for those hacks, and separate issue, what individuals or entities on behalf of the debtors were responsible for preventing such hacks, whether those persons uh, or whether they were negligent in the performance of their duties. Um, and whether those individuals you know, remain employed by the debtors. And then finally, shedding transparency into the relationship between the FTX entities and the Celsius entities. Again, this is not meant to be a comprehensive list, but I'm providing it as I did provide to the other parties um, yesterday evening. Um, these are the types of things that we could see an examiner looking into in these particular cases.
0: So pretty much anything and everything that happened pre what you're asking for,
2: um, we're not. Uh, Your Honor is the final determiner of the scope of the examiner, not the U.S. trustee. These are just things that we think would make sense, but scope could be different. Um, and I will also point out, Your Honor, that you know I, there was testimony by Mr. Ray about securing, having secured wallets, and that. You know, having an examiner could, I guess, create some type of a security risk, I think, was what he was saying. Um, and number one, I, I mean, I certainly hope there wouldn't be a security risk with any examiner. I mean, obviously, we would appoint an appropriate person. But a lot of these issues, I don't think, would even involve having to look into – I really don't understand a whole lot about the system here, and I'll have to admit, but, you know, looking into cold wallets, hot wallets – any of the, the, the um,
0: well you wanted, you wanted him to investigate what happened with the customer funds, which would require investigating what happened with the cold wallets, the hot wallets and all the, and the, the, the entire computerized system of the debtors, wouldn't it?
2: I'm not a technology expert, your Honor. I think that some of it could be do- I also I also don't know what type of documentation there is of that. Uh, I think some of that could be done without actually getting into wallets. It it certainly... I mean, because there will be transfers. Once the money is taken from the wallets, it was then transferred to Alameda, is my understanding. I don't mean to be testifying, but that's my understanding. And it, it may be that there's things that could be traced as to how it got to Alameda that would not require actually going into the wallets themselves. But I am very... Um, I'm not the type of person that could really clarify that. I'm sorry, Your Honor. I don't understand how that works well enough. Um, obviously, um, any examiner appointed would have to be somebody that was very knowledgeable about that area, about cryptocurrency. And we think certainly that would be appropriate to have somebody that's very knowledgeable about cryptocurrency. But to the degree that that type of investigation is needed, I feel very confident that the debtors Along um, with their professionals, we'll take every step to make sure that all um, that there's no compromise of any system. That all security that's needed is there and protected, um, and that they would hopefully um, cooperate with the examiner as much as possible. And the examiner can't get access to this unless the debtors get the examiner access. There's no other way for the examiner to do it. So it would be. They, they would, the debtors would be supervising this. There should not be any type of a security risk under those circumstances. Um.
0: Well, let's talk about your view on the mandatory nature of 1104. So 1104 says that if I don't appoint a trustee, um, that an examiner uh, under C can be appointed And the appointment, and I should take into account um, an investigation of the debtor as is appropriate. So, what does that mean as is appropriate? I know you say that doesn't mean if appropriate, but doesn't as as is appropriate also mean as is necessary?
2: Isn't it the same? That would relate. Well, that would relate to the scope. Um, Well. I guess, Your Honor, I think what Your Honor is is getting to, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that there are other parties here that are conducting investigations, and we're well aware of that, the debtors conducting investigation with its professionals. Presumably, I, I uh, understand that the committee is doing the same. And I think in that regard, what's relevant is that the, the Code talks about, you know, if these, if these elements are met, an examiner shall be appointed. It doesn't say an examiner shall be appointed uh, unless the debtor is investigating itself or you know, unless there's new management of the debtor or unless there's a committee that can, can undertake that process. I mean, even uh, my understanding is Your Honor, in Pred, you know, there was a committee and there was new management and Your Honor still appointed an examiner. And there were other cases that we cited in our, um, in our reply papers and probably our moving papers as well where I mean, there's creditors committees in most cases Clearly, the Congress was aware that the creditor committee has the ability under the code to conduct investigations, but they nevertheless approved 1104 C1 and 2 and said, you know, under this circumstance, it's an examiner that has to do it. It's not good enough to have a committee do it. It's not good enough to have a debtor, even if it has new management, to do it.
0: Well, in credit, I, I indicated first that I didn't think it was a mandatory obligation under 1104. And two, um, There were still, the two main founders of that company were still in charge. They had appointed an independent director, um, but they were still there and running things, which informed my decision on whether or not I should appoint an examiner in that case. So let me ask you a hypothetical here. Say a debtor uh, meets the debt threshold under um, 1104 C2, and a week before confirmation hearing a creditor comes in and says we want you, judge, to appoint an examiner because we think there was something happened at the firm, we don't know exactly what it was, but we think there's something wrong and we want an examiner. Am I obligated to appoint an examiner in that circumstance and put off confirmation of the plan for however long it takes the examiner to do a report? Your Honor, um, I think first of all, I don't
2: think the the code provision requires that confirmation not go forward. It doesn't. It doesn't say that if an examiner's. But I understand why it would make sense to do that. But I don't think that that's a requirement.
0: How could I confirm a plan if I've appointed an examiner to let me know whether there was insiders who did something wrong?
2: Well, so I think um, so. UAL Corp, which is a bankruptcy um, Northern District Illinois back from two <coughs> thousand and four, uh, actually I think. Addressed that issue, um, they said that if you have a situation in which the case with the debt exceeds the threshold, and you know a party sought an appointment of an examiner to investigate a private dispute, that's how the court put it, a private dispute with the debtor. It does not raise issues as to the quality of the debtor's management. The court could limit the scope of the investigation to quote whether there is good cause to engage in the inquiry suggested by the movement close quote. So and that's three oh seven. Well, that
0: would be an inquiry into whether I should appoint an examiner. Um,
2: no, it. It. I think I. I thought what the court was saying is you do appoint an examiner, and the examiner looks to see if, if somebody comes in and makes allegations that are. Seem to be you know, motivated by, um, you know, a litigation tactic or something that doesn't seem to be in good faith, then the code provision does state that an examiner still has to be appointed if that threshold is met, that the examiner can look into, are there any grounds for these allegations, I mean, if, is, there, is there anything? And of course, if it's found that there are, then presumably the scope would be, the court would expand the scope to look into those allegations that the examiner found there you know, might be something there.
0: What if, in the, what if um, the creditor comes in and says, we think there was a $10,000 fraudulent transfer an insider of the company we want an examiner to investigate that but the debtor is on the verge of administrative insolvency and if I appoint an examiner it's going to push him over the edge do I still have to appoint an examiner then too
2: I mean your honor under the code provision that would appear to be the case um, we don't have that situation here obviously um,
0: <clears throat> well I'm trying to get at is: are there exceptions which means that there are there is some discretion that has to be applied. And determining when and how to apply that discretion should be on the court, should it not? Not on an examiner appointed, who then tells me whether or not he thinks I should appoint an examiner further to investigate?
2: Well, the court does have discretion if it falls under (coughs) C1 of 1104. I mean, if if the threshold, and again, remember, Your Honor, the threshold is not $5 million in debt. It's $5 million in very particular kind of debt, which is not every case. But if that occurs. Quite a few
0: of them in this court.
2: If that occurs, if if, if that threshold is met, and the other things, you know, there's not a confirmed plan, there's not a trustee, there is no discretion in the statute. That is the U.S. trustee's view. That is the view of the only circuit court that ruled on this, and the few district courts that have ruled have reversed the bankruptcy court. Under these saying there is no discretion. They must be appointed. Now, I understand certainly understand the court's concern that someone might be, again, acting in an abusive manner, you know, acting for under um, for wrongful purpose. Um, again, that's certainly not this situation. Um, I think that's one of the things that well, wrongful purpose or that they that that the they're not really asking for an examiner. I mean not there's nothing to examine like some of these cases in this district where it was a part of the plan confirmation and a party was trying to get an examiner appointed to basically look at legal issues or like in um uh, in Malincrot where there were allegations that council representing certain Uh, Tort claimants had done things that were improper because that was not the debtor. It has to be actions by the debtor. And so we do have some, it has to actually fit. Somebody actually has to be asking for an examiner to actually investigate the debtors, the action of the debtors, not something else, not a legal issue. Um, But if it does fall, if they meet all of the requirements of 1104C2, the U.S. Trustee believes that there is no discretion by the court, that that's what Congress intended. And we cite, and we go through the legislative history in our reply brief, that was what, this was a compromise where there were certain parties that wanted to have trustees appointed automatically in all large cases, that didn't happen. This was the compromise, that an examiner would have to be appointed under these circumstances.
0: Let's talk about kind of the overall scheme of 1104, because 1104, says you don't even get to 1104C unless the court decides not to appoint a trustee. So why why would the appointment of a trustee obviate the need for an examiner?
2: Well, the trustee has the ability to conduct all sorts of investigations. I mean, that's part of what a trustee does.
0: And a trustee is someone who is appointed who is independent, Independent. no connection with the company before they filed for bankruptcy. Um, All of the attributes that we have with Mr. Ray and the independent directors who've been appointed in this case.
2: But Your Honor, there is a difference between a trustee and new management. I mean, again, the code doesn't, the 1104C doesn't say unless there's new management. Or unless there's a committee that can conduct the investigation. And I think that it's very important that a the difference is an examiner or a trustee, well certainly let's stick with an examiner, and an examiner has to prepare a report, and that is a public-facing report. It is independent and does not represent any constituency. Yes, Mr. Ray did not have a prior connection with the debtors. He was appointed by Mr. Sam Bankman-Fried, and he is the CEO of the debtors. He does represent a constituency, that is the debtors. He is not independent, not like an examiner. And even though a committee, I mean a committee also represents a constituency, but again, Congress was aware, it gave the ability to do investigations. They don't file reports with the court. It's very different than an examiner. They can settle, so can the debtor. The debtor can investigate things, can investigate claims, and settle without that investigation ever becoming public.
0: So well, they'd have to file a 90-19 motion.
2: They do have to file a 90-19 motion, but it is not the same, and I've seen many a 90-19 motion, um, it is not the same thing as an examiner's report. This is, again, this is what Congress decided needed to be done under these circumstances. And even, Your Honor, honestly, even if you say, all right, you're reading as is appropriate to mean if appropriate, this is a case where it's hard to imagine that it's not appropriate. I mean, I will use, for example, Judge Sanchi in... um, Bistion, thank you. Judge Sanchi, and there he, he did not believe that, that C2 was mandatory. And there he said that, um, he, he also, I he didn't, it seemed unclear as to um, you know, what actually was being asked of the examiner to do. And I, I believe this was also, um, if it was not act confirmation, it was close to it. But Judge Sanchi said, quote, at some point there has to be a level of smoke, if you will. Not a lot, but more than none. More than just a whiff of smoke. And let's compare that to what Mr. Ray said in his declaration that's being admitted in ex- as Exhibit 20, paragraph 9, saying that FTX's situation is a dumpster fire. So we we don't have a situation where there doesn't really seem to have been any wrongdoing, that somebody's coming in and asking for um, an examiner for an improper purpose. Again, this is assuming, I'm just for a moment assuming, which of course the United States Trustee does, does not agree to, but if, if as is appropriate means it has to be appropriate, we think it's very appropriate here, and of course we think for the same reasons that it's in the best interest of the creditors. We understand that you know Mr. Ray was not prior management, but again, 1104C nowhere, whether it's under C1 or C2, it doesn't say unless you have new management, unless there's a committee, unless you have federal and state agencies uh, doing their own investigation, none of that's in there. none of that those elements are relevant to whether or not an examiner should be appointed. And again because an examiner it is a public facing it does do an, he or she does do a report. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, hold on just one moment, your honor. Mm-hmm. I I don't want to go out of order and confuse things. Right, so, again, residential capital, which, again, is one of the cases that um, the the objectors do rely on, is one of the written opinions that says it's not mandatory. But even there, the court said, when it did appoint an examiner, it said it must be appointed, quote, notwithstanding the ability of any other party to effectively and expeditiously investigate the debtor, close quote. So we're not the, the the fact that there is a a, a committee or are other people that can do it is not relevant once the elements have been, the the elements of 1104C have been met. And again, an examiner is required to publish a report. A committee, the committee has discretionary ability to investigate, it's not required and they are not, certainly not required to file any report. And conducting an investigation is specifically removed from the list of the debtors in possession duties under 1107A. So, again, the fact that there's new management, none of that is relevant. And it's not novel to appoint an examiner in situations in which you have governmental you know, law enforcement or regulatory agencies conducting their own investigation. That happens all the time. Those agencies will not be filing a report with this court as to the results of their investigation. It's a, it's a completely separate function that they are performing. The, the debtors also talk about, again, talk about the law of this district. He cited a Third Circuit... Opinions say there is no such thing as law of the district that just doesn't exist. He also said ben- the bench rulings are binding precedent. They're they're not binding precedent. Um, in fact, I mean Judge Walrath won't even let you quote back her own bench rulings to her. I'm, I'm not saying that that you know, I'm not saying that all the judges are like that, but it's it's not it's not binding precedent sh- certainly. I want to talk a little bit about cost issue um, cost is not mentioned anywhere in 1104 this is not a case like Duane Leboeuf in which the, I mean, your honor asked about converting to chapter 7 that was a case in which the court indicated that the cost of an examiner would result in the case, the debtor's cases being converted to a chapter 7 and most likely becoming an administratively insolvent that is absolutely not this case in fact exhibit 15 which is the debtor's interim financial update as of December thirty first of last year, which is I want to call it. it was, they haven't filed any monthly operating reports. It was their way of filing something along those lines, although it doesn't comply with a monthly operating report. But on ele- page eleven, it shows the debtors having the debtors having unrestricted cash of over one point two billion. That does not. That's apart from custodial cash. That's apart from restricted cash. So this is not a situation in which these debtors' cases are going to be converted or they're going to become administratively insolvent because there's an examiner. That doesn't mean that there's no budget for the examiner. Of course there's going to be a budget for the examiner. Um, But there's no reason to believe that the cost of the examiner doing an investigation is going to be more than the debtors' professionals conducting an investigation. And I point to Exhibit 10, which is a supplemental declaration of Mr. Diederich of Sullivan and Cromwell. It attaches the list of professionals that... Worked on it's billed time. They haven't filed their fee application yet, but billed time on the matter. There were over 150 individuals, of which 30 have billing rates of over $2,000 an hour. So, to the extent that an examiner is doing certain investigations to prevent duplication, that should mean that the debtors' professionals can cut back on what they're doing in that regard. Um, I will also say that the debtor's arguments regarding the cost of an examiner should not be given weight because the U.S. trustee in one of its discovery requests asked for documents reflecting any budget or estimate of the cost of an investigation to be performed by the debtor's professionals of any of the events leading up to the debtor's uh, uh, Chapter 11 filing, fraud, bad acts, etc. The response to that was an objection to say they did not provide the information, and and it said on the quote on the grounds that it is irrelevant to the examiner motion. Well, we agree, but the debtors can't have it both ways. They can't say, oh, it's going to be so costly to have an examiner based on examiners in in other cases, but at the same time not be willing to produce their budget or estimate for what is going to cost for the debtors professionals to do the same kind of investigation?
0: Well, I can take my own experience and say, um, uh, given the scope of what you laid out earlier, um, the proposed uh, examiner investigation, I can give you a ballpark what it's going to cost. And it's going to be in the tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to do that investigation. Because they're going to have to hire all the same types of experts, financial advisors, Cybersecurity advisors, crypto advisors, who are all going to have to do the same thing that the debtors already started to do, and the committee has already started to do, um, and the government has already started to do. Um, it's going to be, if it's the scope that you're asking me for, it's going to be expensive. Or the alternative is, I have complete discretion, right? I mean, I could say, okay, I'll point an examiner. Your budget is ten thousand dollars. Are you going to find somebody to take the job? No, Your
2: Honor. I think that's effectively the same thing as not appointing an examiner.
0: Isn't, doesn't that show why 1104C really doesn't make any sense to be a mandatory obligation by the court, that it's not subject to discretion? It's kind of the same as Rule 65, um, injunctions. There's a, uh, I think it's 65D says if, uh, if the court imposes an injunction, it's different for, a little different for debtor in, a, in a Chapter 11. But if a court imposes an injunction on Rule 65, if you read the language of Rule 65, I think it's D, says you have to impose a bond. But courts have almost universally said, I can set the bond at whatever. If I can set the bond at a dollar, then certainly I can say you don't need to set a bond at all, especially if you have a case where you have an individual suing a major corporation and the individual is successful in getting an injunction, and you're going to impose a billion-dollar bond on that who can't do it, and then they lose their case? No, you can't do that. So courts have universally said that's not um, a mandatory obligation, even though the language, if you read it the way you propose reading here, would make it mandatory. So there's always discretion by the court, right?
2: Your Honor, we would not agree. Um, And and again, other cases, in the district courts, the, the few, there have not been a lot, but the few district courts and the one circuit court that have ruled on this, disagree. We reverse, the district courts were reversing on well, the circuit court as well, I believe. We're reversing the the determinations by the bankruptcy court that there was discretion under 1104C2. And I said, no, there's not. It says what it says. Shall mean shall. This is what Congress wanted. Um, you know, I, but
0: I, I can set the budget of whatever, whatever I want.
2: Well, If it's set to the point is the equivalent of not having an examiner, then the statute really hasn't been complied with. I mean, I-
0: All it says is I have to appoint an examiner. It doesn't say I have to give them a $100 million budget.
2: We would hope that Your Honor would not provide no budget for the examiner if Your Honor was to appoint an examiner. That's again, effectively not appointing an examiner. Um, But I understand the point Your honor is making. a few other things I'd like to mention. Um, again, if, if Your Honor was looking under, if we look for a minute under C1, the best interests of the creditors, or another way to say whether, again, if, if one was to use the as is appropriate as meaning if appropriate, we do believe that there is plenty here. And I think part of this shows the joiners that were filed um to the U.S. Trustee's appoint, uh, motion to appoint an examiner, there were joiners filed. There was one by Texas State Securities Board and Department of Banking, that's the, um, at 600 on the docket, and they attached letters from state agencies or Attorney General's office from 15 other states, and DC supporting the joiner. It's a total, when you add the other joiners that were filed before, 18 states and the District of Columbia. And what, tech, what they, the Texas joiner said was that Texas is currently undertaking an investigation of the debtors for violations in connections with transactions of business in Texas and with Texas account holders. And then they say, this will require constant access to information and documentation in connection with its investigation and it would benefit from working with and gaining this information from a neutral third party investigator who focuses on investigating the debtors as opposed to running the debtor's business. you know, Mr. Ray has a lot of jobs here, and you know we have a situation where the debtors' schedules and statements have yet to be filed. And they were; it's been you know they filed the cases on November 11th. We have no schedules and statements. We have no monthly operating reports. We have this, I want to call it a faux monthly operating report that they filed. Um, we have no uh, 2015.3 rule statements. They have not been filed, so we're missing a lot of very basic documents uh, in this case. And my hope would be that Mr. Ray could focus on doing that and have the examiner focus on doing an investigation as to what happened pre-petition. They also, the examiner also has to look at the hacks that happened post-petition as well when Mr, um, shortly after um, Mr. Ray came on board. But that I think is what these joiners are saying let him focus on that, I think is a great idea. Let the examiner focus on doing examination and investigation. Another thing that, I'm oh sorry, um, I think I already mentioned that in, in the, and I do wanna clarify, the list that I gave your honor about possible things for the examiner to investigate was simply that, it was simply examples. We are not, we have not taken a position, we don't feel that this is the right time, we haven't taken a position, oh yes, it has to do all of these things. But because we were asked repeatedly by other counsel, what is the, what do you have in mind? These were some examples. And, you know, Your Honor is the ultimate, you know, ultimately determine that. I do not want to say that, you know, we're insisting that each one of these things be investigated or that these are the only things. You know, this was sort of what we came up with to give your honor and to give other folks an idea about what could be appropriate for an examiner to look into. I believe that is my argument, unless Your Honor has any further questions.
0: No, no other questions. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Your Honor.
3: Good afternoon, Your Honor. Uh, Jim Bromley of Sullivan Cromwell. Your Honor, the U.S. Trustee makes a very clear policy-driven argument that the court has zero discretion under Section 1104C2. If the $5 million threshold is met, which is going to be met in virtually every large case, certainly in every mega case, and certainly in every super mega case, the import of the U.S. Trustee's argument is that this court and no other court has discretion to determine whether or not an examiner should be appointed. That is simply not a realistic or accurate reading of the statute or the precedent. And it is frankly, Your Honor, um, disconcerting because there are two places where discretion we believe matters. One is with Your Honor and that 11.04 And the language, which phrase, and particularly the phrase as is appropriate, provides you with discretion. But frankly, Your Honor, in the discretion to have brought this motion to begin with. And that resides with the Office of the US Trustee. There is zero evidence that's been put on before Your Honor today about whether or not C1 has been satisfied by the movement who bears the burden. Nothing but conclusory statements that because Mr. Ray had put in a declaration that said that there's some sort of fraud that has occurred here, period, full stop, it is in the best interests of creditors under C-1 for an examiner to be appointed. And keep in mind, the U.S. Trustee moves under both C-1 and C-2. We believe there's zero evidence under C-1. Mr. Ray testified for over an hour, an hour and a half, And the gravamen of his testimony is that it is not in the best interest of creditors, stakeholders, or the estate for an examiner to be appointed. Mr. Ray testified that he is independent, that his directors are independent, that he has at his direction commanded a group of highly sophisticated professionals to take care of a highly technical and dangerous environment. That environment was so dangerous that on the day that these cases were commenced that over $400 million were stolen because of the condition that the prior management left the the company in and that security environment. If it was not for the immediate action of Mr. Ray and those uh, advisors under his direction, this company would have simply faded away, been stolen, bled dry. And yet the U.S. Trustee stands here and says, I don't really understand these technical things. It's gonna be okay. I'm sure they'll work on it. I'm sure it'll be fine. And then the U.S. Trustee stands up today and says, while I haven't said anything about scope, now I'm going to read to you what the scope is. And it's everything, everywhere, all at once. We have in front of you, Your Honor, two sets of examiner reports from two other mega, super mega cases. Those binders represent $200 million. That's it, $200 million. And the U.S. Trustee says, well, you have $1.2 billion of unrestricted cash on your balance sheet. You should spend some, a lot of that, and completely replace everything that's being done with a new set of professionals who are going to do the exact same thing. With no evidence that any of those professionals or this examiner to be appointed would be any more independent, any more qualified, any more able to secure these assets. It's simply going to be a duplication of effort and an enormous amount of expense. The fact that we may have $1.2 billion of unrestricted cash is not the point. We need $8 billion of unrestricted cash. We do not have enough money to pay back all of our creditors. And the U.S. trustee, for pure purposes of public policy, because bleach and sunshine is a public policy that we need here, says that we should spend tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars to provide some guidance to states that have written one paragraph that said, we agree with what they said before. And the evidence that Mr. Ray has put on and is uncontradicted is that we have done nothing over the past 90 days other than cooperate and provide massive amounts of information to
0: work regulators all around the world. Well, let me ask you a question. You, you mentioned bleach and sunshine. So let me ask you about um, one issue the, the U.S. Trustee raises, which is that under 1106, if I appointed an examiner, there would be a public report filed. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is the view of the debtors in this case of the need to provide the creditors in this case um, with something that shows them what's been done, what investigations have been undertaken, how they were undertaken, and what the results of those investigations are? Because under 1107, a debtor in possession doesn't have that obligation.
3: Well, there are two things, Your Honor. One is uh, what we've already done and will continue to do And then there's what the bankruptcy code provides in other sections. So what we have already done is one of the exhibits, um, which we have agreed to jointly, is a very extensive presentation that the debtors made to the creditors committee. It is not normal course in a case of this size or substance that when you meet with the creditors committee that you publish the same day for the public the complete contents of the presentation that we made. We did that. We will continue to do things like that. It is the view of Mr. A and the management of the directors that there is this is a different case. We need to approach that in a different way. Do we have a specific schedule of things that we're going to say and at what point? No. But are we going to continue to follow in those footsteps that we've already set forth? Yes, we will. In addition, Your Honor, we have an obligation to put together a disclosure statement. That disclosure statement in a case like this is going to be a recitation of everything that has taken place, and it will be up to you, Your Honor, to determine whether the information set forth in that disclosure statement is adequate under the circumstances. We believe that in order for us to confirm a plan, we're going to have to put together a disclosure statement that brings that bleach and sunshine to this situation. So we believe that, well, and I will note, 1106 and 1107 and 1104 do not require in every circumstance that there be a public report. When we talk about the debtors furthering public policy, we have spent literally tens of millions of dollars complying with public policy by reporting to the Congress, to the House, to the Senate to the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York and three other districts. It has led to the indictment of three individuals who led the company in record time. There have been lawsuits already filed by the SEC and the CFTC. When you talk about the debtors dedicating assets to transparency to the public process, I don't think you can find a case where debtors have done anything matching what these debtors have done in the first 90 days of the case. And will we continue to do that? Yes, we will. What Mr. Ray testified to is that on a daily basis, we receive emails that in substance say, we would like you to look at these transactions, these individuals, and get us this information in 24 hours. And what that requires, Your Honor, is us to actually go in, and when I say us, it's the entirety of the investigations team to go into this virtual environment and track down the information that's being requested by the authorities. It's not simply going into a warehouse and picking things off of a shelf. It is interpreting code. It's making sure that when the code is discovered and accessed, it doesn't trigger things that Mr. Ray was talking about that might damage assets. We don't have there are no wallets. There are no keys there are no buildings. Everything we have is a series of zeros and ones. And any time that environment is accessed, it creates risk and dam- d- that damage will occur. And so every time we're going into that environment, the investigation exercise is also securing assets. It's also figuring out whether there are claims as to whether or not the Issues that we're finding in the environment have some explanation that's other than a mistake or incompetence or inexperience. Maybe it's fraud. You don't, you don't know that. When we talk about fraud in court, we often talk about badges of fraud. You don't have badges of fraud in the same way when you're sitting there and having digital experts in Israel and in the United States trying to figure out why the code was changed from X to Y, by whom, who had the right to change it, who had access to it. All of that is a consolidated exercise that takes place every single day. So quite honestly, the idea that we are able to simply hand over that environment to an examiner is naive. Mr. Ray said he will comply with any order of this court, and I know he will, and I know we all will. But the idea that there's going to be some ability to find somebody else out there, to put together a team, and have that team operate as independently and as effectively as the team that's in place, and then write a report, simply means that we're going to add on top of this months, if not years, of additional time, and tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, of additional cost. And who bears that cost? The creditors, Mr. Pasquale's clients. We should not be sitting here duplicating the same thing that is happening every single day because the U.S. trustee believes that there's a policy point of view that 1104 says that it's mandatory no matter what. And the slippery slope of that mandatory argument is not in this courtroom. It's not because the U.S. trustee is going to be an advocate or a pushing a particular agenda. I don't believe that. But 1104 doesn't stop at the US trustee. It says party and interest or the US trustee. Any case law that is established in this case that says mandatory means mandatory, means that every single chapter 11 case with more than $5 million worth of of, uh, debt is going to be at risk of being held hostile at confirmation, at the first disclosure statement hearing, at, at any point in time, it will just become a weapon in the arsenal of every party and in interest because if you take the discretion away from the courts, the weapon's only in the hands of those who are are in the courtroom. And the idea that we will then be reduced to saying the only choice that the courts have is to say no... Um, you know, no, uh, I'm not gonna give the examiner a budget. Well, I, I think that's a, and as, as the courts have continually ruled here in Delaware, that's a silly decision to make. Because the point is, it's not as if 1104 doesn't provide the language. It does. And the history of 1104, the legislative history that was cited, I think incorrectly by the US trustee, illustrates that point. There's not a court that's really gone into this in any level of detail, the Revco case, with all due respect, 1990, the drugstore case, there's two and a half pages, not much analysis, they don't mention the words as is appropriate, and they don't go into the legislative history. That's not much of a circuit decision in my mind. What happens in that situation, on, under, uh, if you read 1104, 1104C 1104 says if the trustee hasn't been appointed. 1104E says that the U.S. trustee shall move for a trustee in certain circumstances. They haven't done that. They have to move under 1104A. No one's moved for a trustee under 1104A. Why is 1104 even there? Why does it bounce back and forth between trustee and examiner? Because the pre-code rule was trustees were appointed. And the United States decided, to our credit, that debtors in possession were a better way of reorganizing companies than putting them in the hands of the Securities and Exchange Commission and trustees. 1104 is a backstop in case things
0: don't work out. I to think 1104 might be a, a leftover from the days when we used to have a chapter 10 and a chapter 11. I, I, I think that's right, Your Honor. The point being is, notwithstanding
3: the fact that I think that's the legacy, the introductory language, as is appropriate is not irrelevant. The U.S. trustee reads shall and ignores as is appropriate. Whether as is appropriate modifies investigation, appoint, or examiner, this court has the discretion to determine whether it's appropriate. In our view, an examiner is not appropriate. In our view, a report is not appropriate.
0: Thank Thank you, you, Your Honor.
1: Ken Pasquale again for the committee. Um, Mr. Bromley really hit on all the key points, and we couldn't agree more with with all of his arguments. But I do think there are a few particularly important points that I'd like to reemphasize, if I may. And I'll be as brief as I can. Um, The U.S. Trustee, first of all, concedes, we heard Ms. Sarkeesian in her closing, say that she recognizes the committee's statutory authority to do an investigation um, under 1103 C2 of the Bankruptcy Code and as you heard Mr. Ray testify the committee has been doing that Um, The committee was appointed on December 15th. It's not even been two months yet. And in that time as Mr. Ray um, Testified to some extent the committee has been working lockstep with the debtors to understand what happened pre-petition and more importantly perhaps and to all ties together and it's one of the points I really want to make to the court is The investigation doesn't stand alone. It fits in with the rest of what this case will need to be. And ultimately, what what do distributions look like to the creditors of these estates? And so the investigation informs the next steps in this case, including whether there will be what we have been calling a a 2.0, some type of reorganization, or whether it will just be monetizing the assets of this company. That's all to be determined. And the investigation again informs all of that. So what have, we, what have we done as a committee in the less than two months since the US trustee appointed the, the group? As you heard Mr. Ray say, we served extensive discovery requests on the debtor. We did it informally. Uh, we still don't see a need to have to come to the court for that. We've been working cooperatively and we have been prioritizing our requests with the debtors and receiving prompt responses. Uh, to what we ask over 70,000 pages or 70,000 documents. Excuse me have been produced as you heard. Mr. Ray testify that have uh, previously been produced to the regulators We are efficiently reviewing those documents doing targeted searches on any number of issues uh, that we become aware of or know from from the uh, Mr. Ray's prior testimony before Congress and, and first day here We are evaluating with the debtors their pre-petition relationships with with their professionals. And by that, I mean their attorneys, their accountants, their auditors. And we're in the process of coordinating uh, with the debtors' counsel on the next steps there, which will be pursuing discovery and ultimately evaluating potential claims. We have filed uh, a joint 2004 motion for authority to serve subpoenas on insiders and related parties. I think that's on for Wednesday of this week to be heard um, as, as an obvious avenue uh, necessary for investigation. And these are just some of the things, of course, Your Honor, but I think the the last, and I think this is really uh, important, and Mr. Ray testified, is with respect to the cybersecurity environment. The committee does not have access to the AWS in the system for the very reasons Mr. Ray testified. However, we have had excellent coordination and cooperation from the debtors cybersecurity experts. And our committee members, of course, are very knowledgeable in this area as as customers of the debtors. And this is their business, so to speak. um, And are consistently bringing issues to us that we bring to the debtors. And we're very quickly getting answers to those inquiries. And so the system is working, the investigation process is working, and there's, in our, in, in our view and as you've heard argument, would not be appropriate in these circumstances to appoint an examiner when things are proceeding the way the code has designed them to proceed with the committee exercising its statutory authority. Now, I do want to touch, um, Your Honor, on the cost. Um, the... the United States trustee said there's no evidence that the cost will be more if an examiner is appointed. But I think it's obvious that it would. So the the debtors and the committee would not just sit idly by if an examiner were to perform uh, its own examination. At a minimum, we'd have to work with that examiner, we'd have to provide information to the examiner, we'd have to coordinate with the examiner, Um, and there's obviously incremental cost that would be incurred in that process. There's no other way that they could proceed. And I think I did mention this in opening, Your Honor, but I do want to mention it again. Given the capital structure here, where there is no other creditor group that, that our unsecured creditors would be competing with, there's no incentive for our committee To do anything but um, what I will call it it, it, an unbiased investigation. The investigation is not going to be used for any adversarial purpose, which again was argued by the U.S. Trustee in the motion. Continuing with the, the issue of the cost, Your Honor, we do think it's entirely inappropriate for an examiner to be appointed in order to for the purpose of issuing a report that satisfies some some public interest outside of these cases, for the very simple reason, as Mr. Brownlee mentioned, the cost of an examiner will come out of the unsecured creditors' recoveries. There's no denying that the work that we're doing is, you know, that there is a significant cost to that work, um, but it's necessary work, and the exam excuse me, an examiner's investigation would just be over and above what is already being done and, the, and those costs that are being incurred. I think Judge Walrath in the, in the Washington Mutual case said it well on that particular point, not only acknowledging that the committee um, was, was well positioned to do the investigation, but quote, excuse me, not quote yet, that it would not be, and here's the quote, it would not be fair to the creditors in this case to be saddled with the cost of an investigation into systematic problems that would only benefit future parties but not benefit, benefit the parties in this case. And that's uh, exhibit D to our objection. It's uh, the transcript page 98 uh, starting at line 12. That's exactly the situation here. Given the investigations already going on by, by the congressional committees, CFTC, SEC, the prosecutors, the, the public interest is being well served in in all of those ways. Our purpose here is to investigate for the benefit of the stakeholders in these estates. Um, I think the only other thing I really wanted to mention, Your Honor, if I may, is just with respect to Your Honor's question about the report. Uh, Mr. Bromley mentioned entirely correctly, there will be a disclosure statement in this case. That disclosure statement will detail um, the results of the investigation. We, as the creditors committee, have an obligation in that context to make a recommendation to creditors as to uh, the provisions of the plan that that disclosure statement will describe. And and we, of course, take that obligation seriously. That document will explain um, the results of the investigation. I'll mention also, of course, as is the committee's obligation, to the extent that we're able, subject to confidentiality and, and other privileges and the like, um, the committee will be providing information on its website, um, which is now up and running, and to the extent practicable uh, on social media as well. So we will take all necessary steps to inform uh, creditors of what's transpiring, again, with the obvious limitations around confidentiality and keeping in mind work product and. And the fact that this investigation will be used to evaluate claims going forward uh, to maximize recoveries to creditors. Um, I think that's all I have, Your Honor, for now. Unless you have any questions.
0: No questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Shore.
4: Thank you, Your Honor, Chris Shore from White & Case uh, for the JPLs. So I'll try not to be duplicative here. At, at the end of the day, it was before the court. Questions of law and questions of fact, but it's kind of hard to ignore that based upon the U.S. Trustee's brief in the first half of Mr. Ray's testimony, that the policy implications of this are coming to the fore and what we do about examiners uh, in big cases. I'm going to start with a simple proposition. There is, in fact, zero policy reason to support the U.S. Trustee's interpretation of the statute. According to the U.S. Trustee, we're out. you get outside of C1, the court's already determined that it is not in the best interest of the estate to have an examiner. We move into C2 land. In every case with $5 million of funded debt, a party in interest, including the US trustee who would have no economic stake in the outcome of the case, needs to file a motion. And everybody in the case must have an evidentiary hearing like this. This is not free. And there must be an examiner appointed, and we'll all figure it out later. In fact, none of the case law supports that. All the cases dispose of that, con, uh, of that issue the way Your Honor was, was asking questions in one of two ways. They, they use the word, as is appropriate, to modify, must appoint. Or they say, as is appropriate, modifies investigation. On the mandatory point, I'm not going to repeat uh, what counsel have already said on that, except to say, um, in their reply brief, the U.S. trustee charges that that the JPLs wrongly quote the legislative history in HR 95 That's not accurate. We, in fact, wrote down wrote down exactly what it said there. I think their point is that it's not binding legislative history, which again is wrong. If you look at uh, 92 Stat 2688, which lists the legislative history, HR 595 is listed there. I think what, what the US trustee is arguing is that because of the debates on the floor after uh, the initial bill, uh, somehow that's the binding legislative history here. But I'll be make very clear, no legislative history at all that addresses the point that they're trying to make. That whether you call it weaponizing or empowering parties in interest or someone with no economic stake in a case to bring a case to a halt. Nobody, none of these senators or representatives were saying that on the floor. So there is no support for this kind of policy idea that shall mean shall. It's going to have to come down to the text of the statute. And I'll focus on the an examination as is appropriate. US trustee bears the burden. Of showing what a examination is, uh, an investigation is appropriately give you the contours of what's going to go on, and we can have a debate about whether or not that is appropriate. In fact, the motion, as we point out in our papers, just says, "I want it to the fullest extent of the um, uh, of the statute as written." Now, courts have not accepted that. Courts generally look to what I list as five things when they're trying to figure out what an appropriate examination is. They ask first, is there really a need for an examination here? I'll get to the smoke point in a bit. What is the scope of what the examiner is going to be doing? What is the cost of the examination on the estate? What is the appropriate duration of it? And then ultimately, we get to a report how are we going to be using it in the case? And what, how do we deal with issues like privilege and whether it's hearsay or not? All, all those kind of issues get resolved. Again, the US trustee is silent on that. And of course, I've got some problems. First of all, it seems easy to say in this case, we need an examiner report. There's there's a dumpster fire. No, we're all standing around right now in a, burning that is, <laughs> that a building that is burnt to the ground and two of the three principals of the company have pleaded guilty to arson. So do we really need to spend a hundred million dollars for an examiner to come in and say "Uh, the building burned down? We know it burned down. We know there were no corporate controls. We know based upon the pleas of two of the three principals, that frauds occurred here. So the, the US Trustee has done nothing other than posit that there is smoke without really answering the question, so who cares? Obviously there needs to be an investigation to determine who's responsible for that, and I trust that the U.S. trustee and the debtors are working on that, and if monies need to be clawed back, they'll be clawed back, but we don't need to really know the why here. Second, appropriate scope. I agree with your honor. How can you appoint an examiner, especially on the topics we're talking about, unless we know what the scope is, or how can the U.S. trustee do it? Should there be an accountant? Should it be a cryptocurrency guru? Should it be a cyber crimes investigator? Should it right? Should it be a corporate controls expert? How do you get to the issue of an appointment without knowing what the scope's gonna be? I don't think I've ever seen a blank, blank check case which was basically being posited here where the court directed the US trustee just point somebody who's examinery and then we'll figure out what he or she's gonna be doing. There has to be real context around this, particularly when we're talking about The next point, which is cost and duration. There are cases, I was in ResCAP, where Judge Glenn kicked the can down the road and there were reasons for that. There are three reasons why you can't kick the can down the road here uh, without giving the examiner what you said. If it's going to be a $10,000 investigation, an examiner needs to know that when when picking up the the charge first with respect to the $1.2 billion in cash. I think that's a little misleading. As the US trustee points out uh, in the reply, or actually in the moving papers, there is an issue as to what if this is customer funds and where the customers are and everything else. So it's not fair to say that the, the debtors have, in fact, free access to use all the cash they're listing is unrestricted. Second on this, assume it is $1.2 billion of cash that can, that can pay admin claims that first chart was breathtaking. The number of in individuals who were already involved, that didn't list the committee advisors, right? This case is burning super hot. We'll find out just how super hot when the, when the fee apps start coming in. But the, the comfort that there's going to be $1.2 billion in available cash doesn't answer the question of how much distributable value is there gonna be in this case and how is a hundred million dollar examination going to relate to that. Third, and I agree with Mr. Pasquale, the concept of deduping, we'll just point an examiner and everybody else is gonna sit, that never happens. The committees continue to work, the debtors continue to work, and actually if you you focused on uh, Mr. Ray's testimony about that second second and third demonstrative where he lists all the work they're doing to coordinate with the requests, that's what's gonna happen with an examiner too. The request's gonna come in, Mr. Bromley, I need 70,000 documents. The, they're gonna go through and say, well, what do we do with privilege? What do we do with these documents? How do we control the uh, the data so that it's secure? And it's just all going to continue to build. In other words, the 100 million dollars is additive, not subtractive from other work that, that goes on. And finally, um, uh, Appropriate form and use. There, there is, in my experience, no evidentiary value to an examiner's report. It it just kind of comes out. And whether your honor would feel that that was important or not, I I don't know how important it is when we're not dealing with a case with insiders in situ, and rather we have a whole new group coming. And sometimes it helps courts with doing things like has the plan been proposed in good faith or things like that. I just haven't heard anything articulated by the United States trustee that would go to that issue. It's not going to, as the uh, US uh, trustee seems to posit, going to lead to an indictment. The court can't indict anybody here, nor can an examiner indict anybody here. So the government authorities who are doing their investigations aren't going to get any help out of uh, the report. And then finally, on this point of important public uh, interest in looking at this, this is not a case in which governments are sitting behind. In other words, there's not somebody out there protecting the public. As seen, the the Congress is looking at it, the CFTC, the SEC, the IRS, all the state governments. They don't need to outsource their work to the creditors of the debtor. Because the irony of the position here is that the creditors who are just gonna want to get their fiat currency and crypto back are gonna be forced to bear the cost of an examination that's only going to tell them the who, who, what, when, where, and why they lost money, but not actually give them money back. You can't tax them to answer questions that no creditor is coming forward and saying we want answers to. We're willing to pay as customers, for an investigation into into this work. If the the U.S. trustee or other government agencies want work, it looks like, or want answers, it looks like they're getting the uh, participation they need from the debtors, uh, and I'm sure that will continue. So from the perspective of um, the JPLs, um, whether you look at it mandatory or an appropriate investigation, I don't think the U.S. trustee has met their burden here to really explain why uh we should all be paying for that.
0: Thank you. Mr. Key? both. Um, is this
1: your code? it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you, Your Honor, again for the record. Juliet Sarkees on behalf of the US Trustee. I have a, a few points to reply to I Think they're all mostly comments that <clears throat> excuse me, the debtor's counsel made. Um, so we're winding back the clock a few minutes. Um, so one thing that debtor's counsel indicated was that the U.S. trustee had put in no evidence uh, to show that we've complied with 1104c1. So our evidence is the declarations of Mr. Ray. Now we didn't put him on the stand and have him, you know, go through and make those statements, but those are in evidence and paragraph five of his first day declaration says, quote, never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here. From compromised systems integrity, faulty regulatory oversight abroad, to the concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated, and potentially compromised individuals, this situation is unprecedented, close quote. And that's just you know, one piece of what he says in this one declaration. And it also, of course, his testimony before Congress. So that is all in evidence, even if we didn't put on a live witness today. And that goes to the best interest of the creditors. And again, if one is looking at the as is appropriate, the way that certain cases have looked at it and Your Honor has looked at it in the past, it also establishes that it is appropriate um, to have an examiner. This is not a case where you know there's not a not a whiff of smoke about wrongdoing. There's there's as Mr. Ray said a dumpster fire. Um, uh, Debtors' counsel also mentioned this report that they gave to the creditors that was then filed on the, the court docket, which is our joint exhibit nine, um, and. You know, yes, they are correct that they did file it on the docket. It, it's, it's 20 pages. It's a PowerPoint. There is a lot of charts and pictures. I'm not saying there's no information in it, but it, it doesn't compare to something like an examiner's report. So the debtor, both the debtor and I believe some other councils are referring to you know, $5 million worth of debt any case, is is, the U.S. trustee going to be required to file a motion for an examiner in any case with $5 million worth of debt? It's not just $5 million worth of debt. There's a lot of restrictions, and that is not every case with $5 million worth of debt. But in addition, I just want to be clear, the U.S. trustee is not required to file a motion for an examiner. It is under 1104E. There are certain situations in which the U.S. trustee would be required to file a motion for a trustee, um, but there is nothing requiring it. The code says we can, we can file a motion, but we're not required to. And I think that, you know, one could see throughout the years, the U.S. trustee is not filing examiner motions in every case in which the debt is over $5 million. Again, any debt or specific debt. Um, it It is discretionary. The U.S. trustee does when it feels... It's the right thing to do. Um, okay. um, one counsel cited to Washington Mutual transcript at page ninety eight. In that case, Judge Walrath said that the debtors had been "quote investigated to death" close quote and that she could not imagine in any examiner finding one unturned stone. That's that. Uh, page 9, excuse me, transcript 98, lines 12 to 17. That is not where we are in this case. The debtors just, you know, filed a few months ago. U.S. Trustee filed a motion to appoint an examiner 11 days after the first day hearing, 20 days after the petition date. The debtors, even at this point, have, are nowhere near being investigated to death. Um, also, the uh, debtor's counsel and some other counsel brought up that, that there will be a, um, a disclosure statement filed at some point, possibly, depending on what happens. A disclosure statement is not an, a report of an independent examiner. I mean, there's no comparison to those two things. Clearly, Congress knew that in Chapter 11 cases, debtors filed disclosure statements. Again, 11.04 see doesn't, doesn't say, unless the debtor has or may file a disclosure statement. What it says is, after the plan is confirmed, you can't make the motion. I mean, well, it's, it wouldn't meet the requirements. Um, but it, it, there, isn't a, there isn't a disclosure statement here, and it's, it's irrelevant to 1104 C. And Your Honor, um, there's two other things I wanna point out. At the end of Mr. Bromley's argument He said the debtor's view is a report is not appropriate. We just want that to be very clear that the debtors have no intention of filing any report as to whatever investigation they may be doing, whereas, of course, an examiner is required to do that. (coughs) And finally, Your Honor, it is, U.S. Trustee agrees that Your Honor has the discretion to set the scope and a budget for any examiner, if you were to appoint an examiner. But the court should not abuse discretion in such a way that it completely eviscerates 1104 C2 as it's been approved by Congress. Thank you, Your Honor.
0: Thank you. All right, I'm going to take a, a recess here, and I'd like to see counsel for the four parties in chambers, in my, in the conference room over here, and then I'll come back on the record after that. <coughs> Still coming in. I think we're missing a few folks still. Record, you mean? Okay. Back on the record. So um, I requested to see the parties in chambers uh, just to have a brief discussion about whether there was a way to find a path towards a consensual resolution of this motion. Um, And uh, the parties have indicated they want to discuss that um, and come back to me later. So I'm encouraging them to do that. In the meantime, I'm going to take the matter under advisement. Um, And we'll uh, wait to hear from the parties. I think we have another hearing scheduled on Wednesday, and maybe by then the parties can give me a status report on where this issue is. Um, And I've told them um, to ensure that there's no concern about um, my being upset about somebody who holds up the process. I've told if anybody objects to uh, resolving it, um, I will rule on it. They should contact chambers, um, let my judicial assistant or my uh, courtroom deputy know um, that there has been an objection debtors counsel can do that don't tell me who's objected just tell me there's been an objection and then I will go forward with uh, ruling on the underlying motion um, so with that do we have I think we have some other housekeeping issues before we adjourn just to make sure there was some retention apps that need to be moved potentially moved
1: uh, your honor we will uh, adam landis for the record from landis for at the cobb we will file an amended agenda for the hearing on wednesday um, but we believe that it's only one matter that will need to go forward um, okay
0: that's the objection to the 2004 again that's correct Your Honor. and that's I assume there's no witnesses for that
1: there there are none and we would we would uh, ask the court's indulgence to do that uh, virtually yes
0: that can be done virtually If there's no witnesses it can be done virtually okay anything else then before we adjourn all right, well, thank you all very much. I appreciate the arguments. Um, it was uh, an interesting, interesting argument.